world gone insane. An upside-down civilization cannot be real. A world of madness and terror. It's the Dana Gould Hour. Today's show is brought to you by Casper. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com forward slash Dana and using the promo code Dana. That's Casper, C-A-S-P-E-R, just like the famous cartoon of the little dead boy. And by Harry's. Please visit harrys.com and use the promo code Dana to save $5 off your first purchase. That's Harry's, H-A-R-R-Y-S, just like the wonderful family film about Bigfoot. Happy holidays to you. And thank you for taking time out of your holiday, be it Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Festivus, or Celebration of the Gooferman, to spend an hour or so with me and my guests. And what guests I have. The cast of the new Mystery Science Theater is here today. Jonah Ray, Baron Vaughn, and Hampton Yunt, the new Jonah Heston, Tom Servo, and Crow, respectively, are with us today on the podcast. And the author of one of my favorite books to come out this year, The Comedians. Drunks, thieves, scoundrels, and the history of American comedy. My friend, Cliff Nesteroff. Speaking of stand-up comedy, if you'd like to see me doing it, stand-up comedy, I will be ringing in the new year in Austin, Texas, on December 31st, January 1st, and January 2nd. Please come out if you are in the area. I will also be returning to San Francisco, California for Sketchfest January 22nd, 3rd, and 24th. For details on all of this malarkey and the baloney, go to danagool.com. You can go there while you're sitting at your desk. You can go there on your phone while you're waiting in line at the store. Or you can go there while you're lying in bed. What kind of bed? Well, I hope it's comfortable. And if it's not up to your standards... Let me tug on your coat for just a second. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the average price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to the consumer. They make an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Mattresses can often cost well over $1,500 human dollars. But Casper mattresses cost just 500 bucks for a twin-size mattress and 950 bucks for a king-size mattress. Casper mattresses have just the right sink, just the right bounce, and I think you know what I mean when I say that. Two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, come together with the right sink and bounce for better nights and brighter days. I'm getting a little hot and bothered. All Casper mattresses are made in America. They have a risk-free trial and return policy. So try sleeping on a Casper mattress for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com forward slash Dana and using the promo code Dana.
Dana Gould Hour. An hour? You're right. It's showtime. Cold winter night atop the Hollywood Hills here at Falcon's Lair Recording Studio. I am joined by stars of today, superstars of tomorrow. You know, when Jerry Lewis had a late night talk show in the early 1980s, he had a, a guest on, one Suzanne Summers, and he looked at her and he said, you have a tremendous capacity for showmanship and pizzazz. And she said, thank you, Jerry, I'll work on that. And I could say the same to you. Comedian, bon vivant, LA Unified School District Supervisor, Baron Vaughn. This is the sound of my voice. And the inventor of those little uh, clicky things that you use when you're mountain climbing. I think they're called grapples. My very good friend, frequent guest. <laughs> I'm a, I can't sustain this improv any longer. Jonah Ray. This is the sound of my voice. And this is the sound of keys. And that's where I got that little joke, because that's what your key ring is. It's a, oh, a carbiner. Carabiner? It's so I don't put my keys in my pocket because I wear my pants too tight. Ah. <laughs> you wear your pants too tight? Is that an intentional thing? I'm such a big guy that I do my best to wear tighter clothes to just bring it in a bit, just oh. to kind of hold it on the inside. Jonah, yeah, I think at some point you need to just transition into linen suits. I've thought about it. Jeff Davis does that pretty well. I have a wide gate, so if I wear a linen suit and I walk around town, people will think I'm about to do a big cocaine deal. <laughs> yeah. I'll wear a suit occasionally, and I like it when I do it occasionally, because anytime I do, people go, whoa, someone cleans up real nice. <laughs> yeah. And it's literally just a jacket on my normal clothes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, well, who are you, Paul F. Tompkins? Actually, now I'm going to a funeral. <laughs> uh, who are you, Paul F. Tompkins? <laughs> <laughs> what does Paul F. Tompkins do when he goes, he wears a suit? I'm broad. I don't. Comedically. I'm broad comedically, and I'm I have a wide build. I'm built like a D battery, and I don't wear tight clothes, and I look like a lantern. We are also joined by Comedy Zone, born of woman, Hampton Yunt, not of man, bastard son of a thousand maniacs, bastard son of a. Please welcome, please welcome the original no, bastard son of a thousand maniacs. You know, yeah. This is the sound of my voice. Speaking of keys, true story happened to me two weeks ago. Driving on the 134. The 134, the lifeline of the San Fernando Valley. It's the phone line that lets Burbank talk to Glendale. Driving home from a meeting, and I'm listening to Rachel Maddow talk about Donald Trump on the radio on mm. MSNBC. And I look at my radio, and I'm thinking, I want to kill whoever told you you were funny. You are not John Stewart. Rachel Maddow, and she's talking about Donald Trump in a smug, snide way. And I was saying, if you were funny, you would know that that is not how you talk about Donald Trump. You talk about him straight, because he's the clown. And you can't make fun of a self-parody. And as I'm looking at my radio, airbags. What? I was literally driving 35 miles an hour, and I'm looking at my radio, yelling at my radio. <laughs> Not yelling, I mean, thinking in my yeah. mind. Like, I'm looking at, like, Jesus Christ, what was going on in that five or six seconds was a guy cut across three lanes of traffic to get to the exit, made the exit, but the guy 
slammed on his brakes in front of him. Guy slammed on his brakes in front of him, and I just plowed into him. Whoa, Whoa. man. Yeah. I had no idea this happened. Yeah. These are the exact kind of disasters that the liberal media causes. Yeah, it's yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. and, and I was only going 35 miles an hour, and I it's the only accident like I've ever really been in. And first, I come out of the car, and it's me at my best. Chaos and apologies. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like a, the guy that I hit banged his head on the steering wheel. He went to the hospital. He voluntarily wanted to go to the hospital. And I'm calling tow trucks and ambulance. And that was a car accident. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Nobody was a jerk because everybody, it couldn't have been avoided. This guy, the guy that caused it is gone. Oh, uh, yeah. He made his exit and he's, God bless him. The only thing that happened is I got a horrible friction burn from where my seatbelt tried to cut my head off. That's oh, almost gone. Yeah. That's, it's, it's almost gone. It was, it looked like I had escaped a hanging at only 35 miles an hour. The violence mm-hmm. of it. If there was a kid in the car, <laughs> you know, I have a booster seat in the backseat of my car for my, Six-year-old. And that thing went flying. I mean, it was just like, oh. Yeah, and she would that would have flown out, and her seatbelt would have... Re- they ask you that when you talk to the, uh, the insurance people, right? You can't use it anymore. Like, I went to get my stuff out of my car. I went to grab the booster seat. They go, leave it. Can't touch it. Been in the car accident. It's junk. Did you also have to tell the insurance company that you were listening to Rachel Maddow? <laughs> I, I told the cop. I was yeah. in shock. I was kind of in shock. He was like, were you looking at your phone? And I was like, I was not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm so smug that I, I yeah. didn't cause the accident the way you thought it yeah. would have been caused. What if, I did something dumber. <laughs> what, if, what if his next question was, oh, you were listening to Rachel Maddow? Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was yelling at Rachel Maddow. Was like, Rachel Maddow? What? He did. Yeah. Um, but it was funny. He goes, and then, and then you tapped him. And I went, oh, I didn't tap him. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I was like, very honest about it. I hit him. See, I'm afraid to participate because I feel like I'll be calling it forward. Some sort of horrible accident, like some sort of incantation. Have you so been you, in an early, been? have you been in an early one? Not that I remember. And by that, I mean, apparently when I was two, I oh, was okay. in an accident in which the car flipped upside down. Ugh. Oh, wow. According to my grandmother. Uh, but well, she's she, probably full yeah. of shit. She told me that when I started having uh, rib pains when I was in my 20s. She's like, I remember she turned to my mom. She's like, you think it's the hole? And I was like, what? <laughs> what just happened The here? hole? Yeah, apparently I was born with a hole in my heart, oh. but it closed. I was born with a hole in my heart, the shape of a co-ed from the University of Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Robert Evans. Um, was there a hole in my heart? You bet your ass. Yeah. <laughs> That's my self-question. <laughs> Could she right fill it? it? Could she fill it? I hoped so. Twice as like a four-year-old, and then like I think like when I was five or six, I would be sitting in a car by myself, and I'd put it out of park, and the car would just roll. Oh, I was in one that I was in one on a hill with my little nephew, and my sister did it. (laughs) That's very spooky. And then I also, senior year of high school, I was uh, ditching class. Me and my friend were going to go check out the uh, Dole Plantation hedge maze. It's the world's largest hedge maze. And as I was leaving school, I say to my friend, I was like, I guess we're in for quite an adventure today. Real cheesy thing to say before we cut school. And then I come out to an intersection and these two kids were drinking before school came in and T-boned me and just like one kid cut open his face and head. The other kid broke his femur bone. My car seat was like in the back of the car, but I was still in it. It was a, it was a real mess. And I was a, the hospital and my dad got there like right when um the ambulance was taking me away uh-huh. and like his brother died in a car accident oh, Jesus. so he was like freaking out and i went to the hospital and i got out and uh 
And then when I was living out here in 2001 or two, I was on the 110 freeway going north. I was in a truck. I was in the middle of kind of moving stuff. Um, I was on my way to work. I had a lot of just stuff in my car and, uh, I, Tried to look at a blind spot, look in front of me, cars like slamming on its brakes. So I slam on my brakes. I just start skidding, you know, twist my wheel to try and avoid right. getting someone. And then I end up slamming into somebody and then tipping over. And then oh, my goodness. truck is sliding on its side <laughs> and it shatters the window. And I have to kind of hold myself from not getting hit by the pavement going by. Wow. And that's then, a big car accident. That's a big car accident. And then like I hit the median and it knocks it back over to its side and I kind of just end up sitting. In the shoulder. It's like a Michael Bay scene. Yeah, it would have been amazing if you hit the median, rolled it back inside, you drove on, moved, no problem. Yeah, no, I mean, the car was, it was real gone. Also, I remember when the, when the, everything was skidding, the skidding by me, I remember just screaming at the top of my lungs, please don't die, please don't die, please don't die. Yeah. Huh. Very lucid at that moment to say yeah. that. Then a guy that got hit by my car during that walked over and he was like, he's like, are you okay? I was like, I think so. And he's like, idiot. Just, just. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, and then I was, my yeah. upper body felt like it had fallen asleep. All the adrenaline yeah. gets pumped in. And then my arms started clenching up in my head. I was like, my broke my back. That's what happens when uh-huh. you break your back. And then the, you know, paramedic came to like yeah. cut the door open so I could get out. Did the guy leave? <laughs> no, he was there. Everyone was waiting. You did, know. He, did he apologize for calling mm. you an idiot? No, no. He I firmly was, believed in that idiot. The thing is, I hit some other van and it was like a family. I had a lot of knives in the car because my mom gave me a bunch of her old cutlery. <laughs> and, if, like, and so I was, because I was moving, she's like, oh, you're moving here. I'll, I'll give you some of my cutlery. And so there was knives just Kitchen With knives and tornado of knives yeah. when heading towards a family in a van. And that's one of my favorite things. The paramedic comes in, he's like, Are you okay? I was like, I think so. And then he looks around, he's like, And these knives hit you? <laughs> and so, I'm just driving know. a sideways van full of knives. Yeah. <laughs> Will you please leave me alone? Loose leaf knives. Yeah, just everywhere. Yeah. Wow. So they put me in the ambulance with a lady from the, one of the other cars, uh-huh. and she's like, going, she's like, We we're so broke, we can't afford this, and we gotta go pick up my daughter. She's a special needs student. Oh, <laughs> and like, I just start crying. Yeah, and, you're just, and you just walk in the van and go, "Guess who hit you?" Yeah, yeah. No, I was in the oh, in the ambulance yeah. with her. It was like a two yeah. people, and I was like strapped to a gurney just because they weren't sure what what, what, what happened. And, oh. then, um, and then like, I start crying, and then like, <laughs> like one of the paramedics was like, "Are you okay?" I was like, "I ruined everyone's day." <laughs> Yeah. You didn't yeah. say life. You just said day. Ruined yeah. your day. I got to the hospital and then like uh, they're like, "All right, you're good. You can go." I was like, "Where's my car?" Because that's where my wallet and oh, no. my all my phone numbers were. I didn't have a cell phone, so all my phone numbers and wallet were there. And they're like, "Oh, it's just down the street." And it was, you know, it's the South Bay of Los Angeles. It's like down the street. It was seventeen miles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. and like it's like the other side of Torrance. <laughs> and I get there and they're just about to close up the impound oh. yard. And I wait. My car's back there. They're like, "Sorry, come back tomorrow." I was like, "I don't know what to." Do <laughs> yeah, I only know. lived in LA for a month? Yeah. I'm in shock. By yeah. the way, yeah, that was. <clears throat> I did find a dollar on the way to the impound lot, <laughs> oh. and that night I did go see Shallow House. So it was it. You win some, you lose some. Yeah, yeah. My guest today is the author of one of the two books that I have bought in bulk this year. When I find a book that I really like, I buy about a dozen copies and I just give them to people like, you'll love this, you'll love this, you'll love this. The first book is called Operation Paperclip. It's actually a couple of years old, but it's the story of how immediately after World War II, 
the United States and the Soviet in uh, Russia, or was it the Soviet Union? At Soviet the time? Union. It was the Soviet the Union yeah. at the time. All were in a mad dash to get all the Nazi scientists to work for them. I think I'm going to Nuremberg, or you can go to Alamogordo, New Mexico, and live in a beautiful ranch home. That book is utterly fascinating, and the other book is called, quite simply, The Comedians, and it is a incredibly exhaustive history of what we now know as stand-up comedy, and what is amazing about it is it's so fucking readable. A lot of the stuff I thought I knew, I realized that my knowledge, which was fairly decent, barely scratched the surface. It's so fascinating, and uh, there's so much about it I want to talk about. Please welcome my good friend Cliff Nesteroff. This is the sound of my voice. Perfect. Before we get into the actual book, you did stand up for a while? Yeah, I did stand up for eight years. Yeah. 98 till 2006. Yeah. I recently found a flyer for a terrible, I don't know if it was a TV pilot or what, what, what it was, some kind of a pilot in which we were both on the bill. We right. never met then. I don't, think I, met, <laughs> I don't think I met anybody involved with this dreadful pilot. <laughs> It was so archaic, this pilot, that it uses the phrase in the, in the, in the hype, information superhighway. <laughs> I believe it was called, the humor comes at you faster than 28-8. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We were on that, we never met. We are both a part of a little email click. Secret cabal. Secret cabal of uh, showbiz uh, arcane. Ar- yeah. Arcania? Yeah, when people question things like, how did that guy get that job? It's yeah. because of this secret cabal that yeah, we're part of that exactly. uh, and yet we, strokes each other. Exactly. And yet there comes a time every day when you need to be in the presence of people who can tell you a lot about Paul Marco. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but The Comedians, it covers basically the 20th century. And it's broken down into, when I think of the evolution of stand-up comedy, it starts in vaudeville and music hall, and then it moves into radio and the during World War II, these sort of, before the presentation houses, it was, how would you describe it? And the name of the... Well, nightclubs, but the phrase often used was supper clubs. Right, supper clubs. Where you would, uh, you know, dress up, go and have dinner, dance, and watch a show. Yeah. And there was usually an orchestra, a dance team, a singer, and a comedian all on that same show. The Copacabana right. is usually the best example of that. And right. People know that from Goodfellas now. Later known as gin joints. Right, or saloons. Uh, saloons. I mean, there are many phrases for these places. But yeah, uh, yeah anywhere that they served booze uh, where a comedian performed. Yeah, right, and those like, comedians, well, now we're talking, we're in the 30s and the 40s, and you're you're looking at Bob Hope, Milton Berle. Milton Berle and Bob Hope were more presentation house acts because they came right. out of vaudeville. But then there was this next generation of guys, your Alan Kings, your Myron Cohens, your Jack Carters, your Shecky Greens, who never did vaudeville. They were too young. But they were also older than the coffee house comedians that right. came and along. That's what I want to talk about specifically is when that change, because that to me is the birth of what we think of as stand-up That's comedy. Right. That's right. From these very traditional supper clubs where you wore a tuxedo probably, and it was an orchestra, and there's a singer, and a comedian was one part of that. Yeah. And I actually feel that that is the best place for a comedian. That's why I always love to perform not in a comedy club. Right. Because comedians, to me, are peas. We're not the steak or the chicken. My favorite places to perform in L.A. were always the Big and Tall Bookstore because it wasn't a stand-up comedy club or Largo, which was a music club. Right. I love performing at Largo 
with a piano and a drum kit behind me because I don't necessarily belong there. So I think that works better for comedy. Do you, do you find that uh, an audience, I guess it could go either way, but do you find that an audience laughs harder when you're the only funny one on the bill? Whereas when you do a stand-up show with 10 guys, the audience is expecting comedy. So they're a little bit, you would think they'd be more open to laughing, but they're almost like challenging you to make them laugh. Whereas I, if you do a show where nobody on the bill is funny, it's a band, it's whatever, the comedian, if they're good, is like a huge relief for that audience. I agree. I never thought about it that way, but that's not only true i'll give you the cinematic and again a lot of the stuff that i write in my other career i love comedy where it doesn't belong i mean the reason bruce campbell to me is such an unheralded genius everything in evil dead too because he's not supposed to be funny this is a funny character in a horror movie it makes everything that much more funny which is not to say he's not brilliant at what he does Another great example is Eddie Murphy in 48 Hours. That's just a thriller. But this guy in it is hilarious. Right. It's not a comedy. He's just funny in it. I saw a screening of The Dead Zone last year, presented by, of all people, Kathy Griffin, who says it's her favorite movie, and she was great. Presenting the Christopher Walken Dead Zone? Christopher Walken Dead Zone. Now, when that it's funny. Movie- when, when we dated, that's what she called my lap. <laughs> In 1983, when that movie came out, it was a straight Cronenberg thriller, serious movie, Christopher Walken, serious actor. So I go and see a screening of it last year with a full audience. Because Christopher Walken has become this comic figure, yeah. the whole audience is laughing every time Christopher Walken says a line. And that, it's not ever intended to be funny. Now it's a comedy because of what Christopher Walken, his persona has morphed into. But, that is fascinating. Yeah, isn't that weird? The same can be said when you watch Laura and Vincent Price comes in and is like, well, people always think I'm guilty of something. Right, like, right. Like, he was just a character actor right. back then. There's an odd relief. Like, I knew I'm going to get in a car accident. It's impossible to live in L.A. all your life and not get in a car accident. And I haven't been in one. And that was always like this thing, like, oh, it's going to happen. I'm going to be in a car accident. Yeah, I have a weird thing and about I'm it. I'm so happy in a weird way, like, okay, I did it. Well, statistically, I saw my airbags. Statistically, you get to kind of reset, right? I think so. Although the odds, <laughs> the odds are no. I have every as much of a chance as before. Although I'm actually a much safer driver than I was before. Yeah, I drive real slow these days. I also like right when I got my license. He said I, safe. You said slow. Totally different. Totally no, different. no, no. Slow to me is safe. I'm a real cautious driver to the chagrin of my wife. She's like, just go. Yeah. <laughs> I have to put my phone in the back seat. Because I will instinctively, like not even thinking, just reach for it. When the kids are in the car, I'm just like, take the phone. So you're deciding to pay attention when you're driving a couple ton steel machine powered by dinosaur juice. Paying better attention. Yeah. <laughs> steel car? What are you driving, yeah. fancy pants? Me? Loose leaf knife mobile. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bunch of knives that I put on top oh, of two wheels. Hey, any of these knives hit you? No. Voila. The car that I'm driving now, my old car, 92 Volvo 240, is solid steel. It weighs two tons. I got rear-ended once. In that car, just like at a stoplight, it was a guy in a florist van. His front bumper came off on my car. Nothing. I really wish the car would have exploded flower petals. <laughs> Flowers are, no, it was like, that thing is like a tank. But the newer cars, basically cars, like throw it away. Yeah, they're made yeah, of plexiglass, yeah. basically. Yeah. yeah. I had a Prius, and I just junk it. The interesting thing about a Prius after driving a Volvo 240 is it's like driving a paper airplane. It is so light. <laughs> <laughs> that car is like, oh! It's like a boat. But yeah, I'd, I just had never been in the big car accident. And uh, now I have. I feel much better. Now it sticks with you. Screeching tires make my skin crawl, hurt my spine. 
I have dreams where you you now that you know the physicality of what it feels like to skid and hit and yeah. tumble in a car, it doesn't leave your sense memory. It's PTSD. Yeah, essentially, it's, yeah. it's all there, a form of it. And to really be powerless, there's nothing you can do. Yeah, it's, it's nuts. <laughs> do you You're lose just your voice for the yeah. ride? Have you ever lost your voice thinking about the car accident? No. A teacher of mine used to say that for people who have survived a plane crash, that they never lose their voices in the plane crash when they're screaming. It's later when they're thinking about it that they lose it because there's something about being in that primal fear place that all of your stuff is like aligned. You're like, ah! Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You're screaming from this pure place and then later you're like, your throat gets all scrunchified when you're thinking about it. First thing that happens after you die? You poo. You shit. Just your body's way of saying, look, that's all, folks. (laughs) You're going to shit I'm going to poo. Yeah. Do what you do. I'll just do poo. Yeah. It really does. <laughs> it does really color like all those romantic movies. Are like, I'll always love you. And, but they least <laughs> So if someone on the internet. Moore. If someone on the internet could take every very beautiful yeah. death scene yeah. in any movie and just put <laughs> just subtle, some subtle poo sounds. Yeah, and it's also subtle because they're not pushing. No, there's there's no more put. Your body's not pushing anymore. Just yeah. 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 It's evacuate. A Is that sad, what they call it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, evacuate. The end of love story. Love means never have Foom. <laughs> <laughs> but do you realize what that is? I was just doing what, what I was thinking. What would it, what would it, Foom. what would it be in the Mad Magazine yeah. panel? <laughs> what would Mort Drucker write? <laughs> but don't you get, don't you realize what that means? That means our bodies all the time are just holding in poop. Yeah. That's what they do. All the time. Once yeah. it doesn't have to. So <laughs> if we didn't think about it, it would just be falling out of our butts. Yeah. Letting, letting <laughs> shit fly is your body's way of putting its feet up. Yeah. <laughs> it's your asshole's way of putting his feet up. Yeah. It's the, it's the hand on the wall of the urinal. <laughs> like in the old West and they're like, let's hang them. And then they're like, Oh, gee. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> but there, in those days, there was shit everywhere. It was like yeah, horse was. and human shit everywhere. When I was in Boston recently, I didn't realize that all those little metal things next to doors are made for just getting shit off your boots. It's also yeah. for mud. For mud. mud. But what was the mud made out of in those days? Mostly shit. Mostly, Mostly shit. shit. Mostly, Mostly shit. Shit, shit in yeah. politics <laughs> in Boston. Yeah. Everything shit in politics yeah. in Boston. Yeah. Roads oh, yeah. that were designed before cars existed. I had a, yeah, uh, well, the roads in Boston are designed by the trails of the cattle. I mean, that's why Boston is so ridiculous. Impossible to learn yeah, to drive yeah, really in. ridiculous. Because it's just literally where the cows go. They kind of wore a path in here. Oh, yeah, let, let's let's make build it around there. That's, let that be the road. <laughs> let's not get in their way. You know, let's, <laughs> they got this area. They know better than us when it comes to walking. They got twice as many legs. <laughs> Music Hall and Vaudeville breaks down. You get into post-World War II. A lot of these guys come back from World War II. They've all seen shit, and they're not talking about it. The psyche of people in the 50s was a tight lid on a raging boil. Yeah, and it was true of all art forms at that point. Exactly, you know? yeah. Film became more cynical. Film noir is kind of seen as yeah. a post-war uh, yeah. reaction. Jazz. Jazz well, music right. turns into bop music and free jazz. Literature turns into the beat, beat generation. Yeah. And comedy was part of it. So that's why Mort Saul and Bruce Jonathan Winters, by a lot of people, are associated with the sort of beat generation aspect, the coffeehouse right. aspect. These comedians are sharing the bill with jazz musicians. They're sharing right. the bill with progressive, sometimes 
communist folk musicians. So, yeah. So you get into what we think of as stand-up comedy. In fact, the term stand-up comedy yeah. comes from organized crime. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Explain that. Yeah. Well, according to a 90-year-old comedian who, who never became famous, a guy named Dick Curtis, who was just a perpetual schlepper working for the mafia in a million little nightclubs from Baltimore to Pittsburgh to Miami Beach, he was doing stand-up starting in the early 40s, and the phrase stand-up comedy came about in the 1940s. In vaudeville, they were called comedians. They were never called stand-up comics or stand-up comedians. Right. It wasn't until the 40s. By then, the mob controlled nightclubs for about 10 years. And, if and you- we're talking about all of them. Yeah, nine out of ten nightclubs were owned by the mob, and that right. tenth one that wasn't was probably one that was burned down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or they tried to take it over because they had run the speakeasy, so they already owned all of these venues. Now right. booze is legal. What do they do with the booze? They can't attract people strictly on booze alone. They put in a stage show, so right. that's where all the comedians were performing. And if you did not, and stand-up comedy, and this was definitely a big part of it in the 1980s. Stand-up comedy is a cheap stage show. To yeah. Put up. Yeah. It doesn't cost a thing. Doesn't yeah. Cost it a just sheer, amount. sheer profit. Yeah. We used to talk about in the 1980s, we would think like anybody who thinks we're going to be here forever, go in the back room. There's a disco ball and a mechanical bull. Yeah. And we were just the third thing they put in here. That's totally true. That's <laughs> yeah. absolutely true. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And some of us knew that in the time. But yeah. So, uh, in the thirties and forties, the mob controls show business. If a, Guy was somebody the mob could work with, a guy who wouldn't rat them out, who wouldn't squeal, who wouldn't talk, who was reliable. He was considered a stand-up guy. And in those days, the mob also ran the fight game. They managed boxers. That was... You know, it's the, the, the premise of a million B movies from right. Warner Brothers is that the mafia controls, uh, boxers. So yeah. a boxer that could go up in the ring and take abuse and keep punching was considered a stand up fighter. Right. So into the lexicon came a comedian. These guys could depend on the mob book, this comedian. He was a stand up comedian, right. a stand up guy, stand up fighter, right. stand up. It comic. wasn't a comedian standing up and telling jokes. It was a stand-up guy who happened to be a comedian. Exactly. He was reliable. I think that's really fascinating. Yeah. And for people who think the mafia ran nightclubs and the comedians never really did, well, I definitely worked in some venues in Boston that had some shady connections. I know that for a fact. Right. You have the story of Joey Lewis, mm-hmm. which became a movie called The Joker's Wild with Frank Sinatra. But yeah. here's a guy that was a stand-up comedian in the late 20s, working in these mafia-owned nightclubs. And uh, another nightclub came and wanted him to go work there. Yeah, he was working in Chicago, a place called the Green Mill Cocktail Lounge, which apparently is still there in Chicago. Yeah. Joey Lewis was basically an amateur comedian at that time. He didn't have a lot of experience, but he'd been booked in this venue and had been playing there for about a month when he got a chance to play somewhere else down the street. And he was tired of playing where he was playing, so he went over there. But his mob bosses said, hey, you're not allowed to do that. You can't just go down the street and work for somebody else. And Joey Lewis said, yeah, I can. You're not the boss of me. Yeah. And they said, actually, we are the boss of you. <laughs> yeah. you know. So to teach him a lesson, he was up in his hotel room, I guess, a week later. And two guys went over there, one rumored to be Sam Giacana before he was famous, and slit his throat, severed his vocal cords. And Joey Lewis was left to die. A pool of blood was pouring down his hotel room floor, leaked out underneath the door into the hallway and it was only because somebody was walking down the hall and saw this puddle of blood moving that he was found in time but he lost the ability to speak he was uh, you know his whole throat was severed it took him a few years to uh, regain the ability to it's a speak. miracle it's a miracle he doesn't do this out of arrogance 
it's out of ignorance. Yeah. Like you can't you work down better. there. That's yeah, right. and I'm going to go work over there. Yeah. And so instead of like going, no, Joey, seriously, they go, no, instead, just go kill him. <laughs> yeah. So they slit his throat, and this is the 1920s. Yes. The knife goes so deep into his throat, it severs his vocal cords and almost severs his tongue. Miraculously, he survives. Miraculously, over time, he regains the power to speak and the ability to speak. He had to literally relearn yes. how to talk. And when he did, he had, he had a voice like this. And for the rest of his career, he did stand up like this. Yeah, regained the ability to speak, regained the ability to perform. Which is amazing because now what do I do for a living? I'll go back at it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so by 1935, he's doing nightclubs again. And the mob then is like, ah, you're all right. This is the thing. So because he survived and because he didn't rat on anybody, right. he was considered a stand-up guy. Right. And because of that, he was a made man. He headlined all of the mafia's major nightclubs for the rest of his career. They're like, this guy's a survivor, and he didn't squeal. That's the thing that's interesting. He knew who tried to kill him. Well, and he- I'm sure the cops asked him. Yeah. They and did. He went, and nope. it, it was a big lesson, not just for him. It was a lesson that the mafia taught all of comedy. Right. So from then on, nobody defied the mob. If you wanted to work as a stand-up comic, you just kept your mouth shut or you accepted it. A lot of guys liked the mob. A lot of them, if they didn't, they would never say so. Right. So because of that, Joey Lewis was this cautionary tale for the rest of time. So people wonder, why would a comedian work for the mob? Why wouldn't you just not work for the mob? You didn't have that option. You knew right. about Joey Lewis. But he headlined the Copacabana. Cabana, Ciro's Nightclub, the Latin Quarter, the Fountain Blue Hotel, the Chez Paris, all the major supper clubs of the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, Joey Lewis was a headliner. Right. And he really wasn't that great of a comedian. He right. was okay. And he was one of the first major Las Vegas headliners. When Vegas became an entity, Joey Lewis was the uh, well, mainstay now, now, at the El Rancho. So it was. Well, wait a uh, minute. Now it, you're implying that when Vegas came about, it was related to the mafia. <laughs> <laughs> the story of Joey Lewis became a movie. Uh, starring Frank Sinatra. Yeah, it was a book first by this guy, Art Cohn, who uh, in that room? died in a, uh, a plane crash with uh, the man who invented Todd A.O. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Mike Todd. He died in the same plane crash with the guy who wrote The Joker is Wild, the biography of uh, Joey Lewis. It's a great little pulp book, and it's quite gruesome. It's quite graphic. I quote a passage of it in my book. And then they turned it into this movie with Frank Sinatra, this Paramount uh, Vista Vision uh, film, which is too long. Frank Sinatra, I think, miscast in this film. Well, but, it's very uh, interesting, and you do a really great job in the comedians of talking about how this movie came about. Frank Sinatra at the peak of his powers, yeah, and it was the story that he wanted to tell. Now, clearly, he could relate to Joey Lewis. He had some ties with organized crime, right. yeah, and he had been in many situations where the mafia was very helpful to him and also not very helpful to him. Right. And he thought, yeah, this is the story that I want to tell. In the movie, you don't really see Frank Sinatra doing comedy because Joey Lewis also did song parodies. Right. And so they more focus on that, which I think is really interesting. People who aren't comedians can't play comedians. That's right. They never can. No. Dustin Hoffman couldn't. Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks couldn't. Yeah. And Tom Hanks is funny. Yeah. You know, Tom Hanks is a sketch comedian. Yeah. is brilliant. And Lenny is, can't a, do and it. Lenny is a beautiful looking movie. But yeah. it still has this disconnect where... Yeah, it's just there's nothing you say is funny. And you can't recreate comedy. That's why 30 Rock succeeded when that other SNL uh, TV show yes. failed. What was it called? Something the, Something on the Sunset the, Strip? The Aaron Sorkin Studio yeah. 60 on the Sunset Strip. Because they're trying to recreate comedy sketches. Then they have this fake audience laughing yeah. at it. And you're sitting at home going, nothing rings more false. You yeah. Know? 
In the movie Sullivan's Travels, the Preston Sturgis movie where Joel McRae is the studio head and he wants to make a meaningful story. And the name of the movie that he wants to make in Sullivan's Travels is Oh Brother, oh, Where right, Are right, 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 right. That's right. where the Coen brothers right, get the right, name right. of it. At the end of the movie, he realizes that people just want to be entertained. Right. And they show a slapstick comedy to a bunch of migrant workers. And they're all laughing their heads off. But they're laughing. Yeah. No one has laughed that hard ever. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. The sure. laughter is so fake. There's a few things in popular culture that are impossible possible to uh, recreate convincingly. It doesn't matter how great an actor you are, you can never recreate a sneeze convincingly. Yeah. It always seems fake. The other is uh, audience laughing. It always seems fake. And the other one is uh, protests. Whenever you see people protesting <laughs> something, yeah. they've got their signs and they're like yeah. waving them up and down in this yeah. up and down motion, the, which the, nobody does in the, a real protest. The, the protest of the opening of Seven Days in May is so yeah. incredibly orderly. Yeah. I was just watching an American werewolf in London and there's the scene in the, in the slaughtered lamb where the guy tells the joke and he says, remember the Alamo and he throws out the Mexican and everybody in the pub laughs and and it is so fake. The transformation into a werewolf is so much more believable. <laughs> Somehow my mother became a huge sports fan. You run out of things to pay attention to. You yeah, know? You maybe. Just, like, you start running out maybe. of things. You're like, well, I'll get into that. All my friends that I used to be in bands with in Hawaii, they all lived to see. I don't know. They all stopped being in bands. They all stopped doing creative things. Now they're all into sports. You need something. Everybody has their sports. Uh, whether it's sports or not. My mother was never into it, and now it's like, well, Tom, that Tom Brady, they finally got off his back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, who was it that used to have that? Oh, uh, Gary Goldman had a joke about Tom Brady, like just talking about like true Boston heads who don't know how to feel, like they're so in love with him. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. they're so homophobic at the exact yeah. same time. <laughs> so he's like, I mean, Tom, you know, he threw that thing, and uh, is he cute? <laughs> My, I think he's cute. Is he cute? I think he's cute, right? My brother, who is a home inspector but has bits, <laughs> used to do a bit about my dad fighting back his love of Bobby Orr. <laughs> he says, feel God, he's, he's beautiful. <laughs> it just says, wait, he comes down the ice, I can't, can't stand it. <laughs> Boston people are inherently funny. They are some of the funniest people. My dad is brutally hilarious. We went to a pizza place in Somerville, and um, there's like the guy running the pizza place. He was getting someone's order to get an older guy. It was his joint. He's like, hey, you want a bag lady? And she goes, you don't call me a bag lady. And then he looks at me. He's like, I guess you're not the only comedian here. Like it was out. It was a fucking just boom, bam, bow. Yeah, I like, I was like, it was a mammoth scene yeah, is what you're saying. Like, yeah. I was in the honor society in high school. And I was an usher at the movie theater. And I, I had to go to my boss. So I'm like, I, I'd be late because I've got to go to this induction ceremony. I'm like, uh, Mr. Dedarian, uh, I'm going to be late uh, tomorrow because I've got to go to the induction of the uh, Honor Society. And he goes, don't shit yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so is that a uh, yes? Is that is that a, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah, 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 who cares? Like that's uh, a lot of older people. Uh, oh, who fucking cares? Who fucking cares? Yeah. 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 How long were you in Boston? Four years. Four years. Four yeah. years. Oh, you're all right. He's all right, though. Yeah. What, me? <laughs> that's, why I, that's why I started doing the stand-ups. 
Yeah. I took you to that place. You took me to that place. The when first we did our half hours in Boston. Yeah, like a day apart. And uh, the where? Dick Doherty's Comedy Vault's the first place I ever did stand-up. Okay. And it's in Remington's restaurant. And I said, Jonah, is I want to take alive? you to... Yeah. I, I think he is. But I took Jonah for uh, dinner there. <laughs> was no, like, it was lunch, I think. Was it lunch? I was like, we should go to this place where I started doing stand-up. It's kind of like a homecoming for me. Yeah, it was and it was We had really like an sweet. okay meal there. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, the food was bad, but the conversation was worse. <laughs> <laughs> it was with me. Yeah, my first time was at the Ding Ho, which also had very mediocre food. <laughs> yeah. Well, comedy club food is among the best. Some of the some of the worst. Of the, <laughs> yeah. That's why everybody I know who works the what's it called the comedy the magic and comedy magic comedy magic the, club. Every comic that I know that works there, the first thing they say is the food is so good. You know, it's, it's so interesting. It's so good. You know, it's so interesting. Mike Lacey, who runs the comedy magic club, is such a nice guy. It's too nice. The club is too nice. It's too fancy. Too, yeah, it's too nice. Yeah. My favorite place to do stand-up used to be the Largo on Fairfax. The original Largo. Yeah. And now it's Meltdown yeah. because its comedy is wasn't intended to be a comedic show place. Yeah. And that's the best place to do comedy. Lenny Bruce used to open for jazz quartets or whatever. Comedy is not steak. It's peas. The best place to perform comedy is in a music club in front of somebody's set drum kit and stuff because you're just there you're a side dish i don't like a nice place and it's, it's i don't like of, ferns and brass rails and yeah and it's weird because it the same thing happens anytime uh there's like a comedy party at it like a festival any festival or anytime a central comedic television station puts on a party it's always <laughs> central comedic yeah, yeah. Yeah. i had one of those in uh let's just call it miami yeah and uh they threw a party for us in which the bouncer would not let any comedians in yeah. because we weren't dressed right. It's, We're wearing flannels and sneakers. No, no. I remember there was a, for the New York Comedy Festival, there was a party and I walked in. I was like, who is this for? Yeah. And who, who is this for? It's not for any of the comics. No, it's for executives. Yeah. What the comics want is a folding table <laughs> with as much free booze on it yeah. as possible. And I was maybe like, some bad karaoke. Was like the, when, HBO, yeah. when HBO had a comedy festival in Aspen, comedy hungry Aspen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so full of angst. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I'll be at the uh, Symphony Hall in Aspen. Hey. Hey. <laughs> I'll be at the uh, Opera House, Wheeler Opera House in yeah. March. I love, don't get me wrong, I love Aspen. <laughs> I love it. It's a I great love, place. I love great the place. In the 1970s, there was a Broadway play about Lenny Bruce called Lenny. And Bob Fosse made the movie Lenny in 1974, in which Dustin Hoffman played Lenny. And this is Dustin Hoffman at the peak of his powers. And he's doing Lenny Bruce's bits, but they're not stand-up comedy. Yeah, it doesn't work. They don't work. There is a story that I think Richard Belzer told me where they were hanging out in front of Catch a Rising Star and Rodney Dangerfield came out of Catch a Rising Star with Dustin Hoffman behind him because Dustin Hoffman followed Rodney Dangerfield around right, right, to kind of right. get a sense of it. And Rodney Dangerfield goes, look, you're not fucking funny. I don't know what to tell you. You could do this for the rest of your life. You're either funny or you're not and you're not fucking funny. Leave me alone. <laughs> that is hilarious. That's also the worst Rodney Dangerfield impression I've ever heard. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't do a good Rodney Dangerfield impression, but I have one very bizarre Rodney Dangerfield story. Yes. Please. I was at the improv on Melrose and you walk into the improv and you w either walk straight into the showroom or you on your left is a stairwell that goes up to a little balcony and uh, Rodney was sitting on the stairwell and I was talking to Bud and 
Bud was talking to Rodney, and I was just kind of stuck there. And Rodney dropped his glasses or something, and Bud went to get, he goes, I'll get those for you, Rodney. And Rodney goes, dude, I'll get it myself, you fucking Jews. He's <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just trying to help you out, man. Dude, you fucking Jews. <laughs> Dangerfields, the comedy club in New York, is, I believe, the longest or oldest running comedy club in existence in America. It opened in 1968. Yeah. The Improv in New York long since closed. Pips doesn't exist. Nope. Uh, Catch Rising Star does not exist anymore. Yeah, and uh, Dangerfields is older than the comedy store. It doesn't get much credit. I guess it was kind of always a corny, almost yeah, tourist joint. It was. No one ever thought it was cool that you were working at yeah, Dangerfields. Yeah, but it still exists to this day. It still operates, which I find uh, bizarre. And, and as, as do I. <laughs> <laughs> I only think I worked there once. But uh, at the time, it, yeah, you did feel like it was like working at the comedy club at Universal City Walk. Yeah, it was, it was like, like nah. being in the suburbs, despite the fact you're right in the. Yeah, right in well the city. put. Yeah, really well put. The mafia runs all of these nightclubs, and then there's this little thing that happens called World War II. Yes. And after World War II, America as a culture goes into this very bizarre. I'm fascinated by sort of the psychological underpinnings in the way that psychology defines personality and personality writes history. And to look at American culture as the psyche of a human being, you've had this massive, massive trauma, which is the Depression and World War II. And you're coming out of these one, two, decades-long punch. If you're a person, your parents die in a plane crash, and the next day your kids die in a bus crash. Right. You know, it's like you're just torn apart. Right. And it's the end of World War II, and America as a culture is trying to stitch itself back together. All of the soldiers are going back to college. They're all finding out what they want to do with their lives. They are have the GI Bill, and they're getting educated. They're getting married. They're having a ton of babies. The suburbs are being created all over the country. People are trying to have a nice quiet life. And that is the birth of the illusion of what Americans think of as the 50s, happy right. days. Quiet life, suburbs, everybody's nice, everybody's polite. Eisenhower is the president, this sort of grandfatherly figure who's going to take care of you. But you can't just wallpaper over trauma. It has to come out. So culturally, in the arts, this stuff starts bubbling out. Film noir is the first example of it. Suddenly, these movies where all these movies about crime and, and, yeah, and cyni murder. Cynicism, despair, yeah. Yeah, as you were saying, jazz becomes bebop. And what we now think of as the 60s is when the guy finally snaps, takes off his clothes, and goes running, screaming out into the street. Yeah. That's really the 60s. Mm -hmm. And the 70s was that guy sitting on a lawn going, what the fuck did I just do? <laughs> yeah, it's funny how so many people, I think, fail to realize that the 60s starts in the 50s. That's obvious. One thing leads into the next, but yeah. people think of Leave it to Beaver and then Abby Hoffman. Like, they're two different things. Yeah. But like, the 50s was the precursor to the 60s with yeah. all these beat and, and what people elements. really think of as the putrescence of the 60s is the 70s. The real groovy man started in about 69. Right. And from that era, 
you have these very traditional school of comedians that are working in gin joints. I think it speaks, though, to what you were saying. I never thought of it until you just kind of mentioned it, the idea that there's this trauma and a lot of people are suppressing it. They don't mm-hmm. want to talk about it. The generation of comedians that came along just before Lenny Bruce, Mortzall, Jonathan Winters, the guys mm-hmm. who came around 45 to 50, were all guys like Jack Carter, Alan King, Henny Youngman, Myron Cohen, Phil Joey Foster, Bishop. Joey Bishop. They all played the presentation houses. None of them ever spoke about their lives or themselves. And I wonder if it comes from that because all these guys were either enlisted or drafted or performing on military bases during the war. Yeah. And they all had, as you say in the book, the army routine was always the showcase of every comedian. They didn't talk about being in World War II, they didn't talk about seeing their friend's head blown off. Exactly. But they didn't talk about how stupid their sergeant was they peeling potatoes. They talked about peeling potatoes. Yeah, it was all Beetle Bailey <laughs> yeah, yeah, jokes. Yeah, yeah. That's all it was. Yeah, no, absolutely. And all of those guys now, and they're dying out, but you see them, and they all have that same color hair. That <laughs> my ex-wife calls it Catskill Copper. <laughs> After Vaudeville died... All those theaters kind of were retrofitted. Did Vaudeville die because of radio? People or? think radio, people think movies, but really it was the stock market crash. 1929, there's no money left. So right. Vaudeville theaters can't pay people the right amount of money and people can't afford to come. Go out. But right. if they owned a radio, they can afford to stay home. It's free and they listen to the entertainment that way. So, But because of that, and you'll see this in Los Angeles, so many beautiful ornate buildings in this city were built in 27, 28, or started in 29. All of a sudden, then there's nothing being built in 1930. So all these theaters were springing up in the late 20s as well. It's really fascinating. Yeah, but then all of a sudden, vaudeville implodes and you have these kind of empty theaters. So they started putting movies in. Now, everybody knows about the cliche of the cartoon and the newsreel coming on before the movie. But what a lot of people don't realize, in these theaters, which they called presentation houses, and still downtown Los Angeles has all these what were yes. presentation houses, the yes. million-dollar theater, places like that, they would have a stage show before the movie. So they would have a, a comedian, a dance team, a singer, an orchestra, then the cartoon newsreel and movie. Right. And this goes on all day and yeah. all night. The most famous presentation houses were in the Broadway corridor in New York. The names today are still kind of famous. And all of these theaters had a deal with one of the major studios or were owned by one of the major studios. And the antitrust right. breakup of the late right. 40s all had to do with presentation houses. So the Paramount in New York had stage shows and they showed Paramount movies. The Low State, the Capitol Theaters showed MGM movies. The Roxy, Radio City Music Hall, and The Strand, they showed RKO movies. So these comedians of that era, the 30s and 40s, they would perform a set that was anywhere from 8 to 15 minutes, and like you say, anywhere from 4 to 6 times a day, because they would show these movies basically on a loop. They would start at 10 a.m. Jack Carter told me that a lot of the people who were in your audience that you were doing stand-up for at 10 a.m. were just derelicts who'd come in, pay 25 cents, and slept in the cold. Now they're sleeping in your audience, and you're supposed to make them laugh. Well, that's the interesting thing about those, and this is the 70s and 80s version of those, of porno theaters or cheap movie theaters. Right. You know, you go in for a dollar. Right. A lot of that is just bums getting out of the cold. You know, you can't get a hotel room for a dollar, but you can sit in a, in a grindhouse theater for six hours and get out of the cold. Yeah. And it's fine. They didn't use the phrase grindhouse in the forties, but it was the same thing. Yeah. No, this is the seventies version. Yeah. You know, that's where the phrase grind comes from. It's a show and a show and a show and a show on a, on a bit of a loop. These presentation houses were huge. 
They yeah. sat anywhere from one to 2,000 people. That's an enormous audience. Yeah. And in those days, pre-TV, they were frequently full, especially on the holidays. So this generation of comedians that predated the Mort Sauls and Lenny Bruce's, the Jack Carters, the Allen mm-hmm. Kings, the Phil Fosters, this is where they learned their craft. And so when television came in, 48, 49, 50, all the guys that got their own TV shows were the people who were doing these presentation houses. Right. Jack Carter, Jerry Lester, Milton Berle. Phil Silvers. Phil Silvers, Jackie yeah. Leonard. These guys were and, and the veterans. Biggest, and the biggest stars to come out of presentation houses. Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Right. Yeah. And it's hard to describe how big they were when they first broke in the late 40s yes they were like the Beatles. They were. They were the closest thing comedy ever had to Beatlemania. Yeah. And there's the famous newsreel footage of them the week that they're playing the Paramount Presentation House up in their hotel room up above, and there's shrieking girls screaming, and they're throwing yeah. autographed photos out the window, and yeah. Life Magazine did a great spread yeah. on that. back, And it's People legendary, just iconic. went bananas yeah what frank sinatra was also at the paramount with the bobby Soxers, martin and lewis were to comedy yeah and jerry lewis is crazy didn't start when he walked on stage it's what got him to the stage to begin with and over time after they broke up what you see in jerry lewis perfectly put on film in the nutty professor but also in his two personalities that you do when you do jerry lewis right he became dean right there's Jerry, blah. And then there's Jerry. And that's Jerry doing Dean. The Nutty Professor is Jerry yeah, Lewis. Yeah, Buddy Love, yeah. Buddy yeah. Love is playing Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it is an interesting uh, psychology. There's no greater example of the neuroses of the comedian than Jerry Lewis. I mean, yeah. the whole tapestry of Jerry Lewis is fascinating to you and I and so yeah. many others for the right reasons and the wrong reasons. There's right. times that he's funny. For us, he's at his funniest when he's using phrases like moreover and he's being really serious. <laughs> Whenever he drops the phrase moreover, you know you're in trouble with Jerry Lewis, the pretentious Jerry Lewis, yeah. the chain smoking Jerry Lewis. The total filmmaker. Yeah, yeah. When Martin Lewis became really hot in the late 40s, Jerry Lewis was like 21 years old. So all these old veterans like Jackie Leonard and Milton Berle initially despised them. Yes. Jackie yes. Leonard says, uh, Martin and Lewis aren't doing anything new that anybody else isn't doing. They just have the balls to break dishes and, and and get away yeah. with it but they're not funny basically what they're doing isn't there was this incredible resentment same as now whenever somebody really young gets really hot maybe a yeah. little bit too fast the old guard has this well you know you talk version we'll get to that with, with lenny bruce also later but yeah i understand when jerry lewis first started he his act was not well written it was you know it was incredibly hackneyed he was you know before he met dean but he just had this energy it was all about energy you and know. it's that same thing about and by the way when dane cook broke i was barely doing stand-up comedy because i was writing on the simpsons uh-huh. at that time and i was really just an observer but i was absolutely that guy going like i don't get it to this day i still don't well you know but, it, but i will freely admit it's jealousy and it's envy i would love to sell out part, part the lower it, end of a state i think part of it is so much of it is about energy the, and energy only translates yeah. from the live stage uh, yeah. really so martin and lewis if people wondered what the big fuss was about and then just saw them in a movie they would still wonder what the big fuss was about but in yeah. nightclubs and in a presentation house live to have jerry lewis walking through the audience doing shtick breaking things putting yeah. a napkin on your head this bold people over i'm sure dane yeah. cook was the same thing live Live, that energy probably made droves of college students uh, excited. Yeah. These people would look at Jerry Lewis and go, I don't get it. What the hell is it? 
Yeah, Jerry Lewis is such a bizarre and interesting phenomenon. He has so many haters, so many detractors, so many sycophants, both mm-hmm. ends of the spectrum. And he's with still Jerry alive. Lewis, and he's still alive. You know, I defend him uh, a little bit. I defend the quality within the work, and I detract the you know, shit of which there is much. The caddy is hilarious. I love his early 60s movies. My favorite yeah. one is not directed by him. My favorite one is The Disorderly Orderly. The Disorderly Orderly is hilarious. Yes, and it's a Frank Tashlin uh, directed film, and and Frank Tashlin, and Frank Tashlin is also a genius, a genius, great animator, great director, just great at comedy, a yeah. visual, just great at visual. People gags. who don't know Frank Tashlin came about. He was a Warner Brothers animator yeah. and worked side by side with. Clampett, Chuck Jones. Chuck Jones. Yeah, everybody. And then he went on to Columbia and and directed a lot of cartoons and then got into features for Columbia as well initially and then Paramount. He directed the brilliant Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter. Yeah. I think uh, he also directed Girl Can't Help It. Girl Can't Help It, which is an unbelievably crazy And they're all very cartoony and visually exciting Did he direct the 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T? No. But The Girl Can't Help It is an amazing... They break the fourth wall in that movie a lot. That movie is... Yeah. All of Frank Tashlin's movies are visually interesting and Disorderly Orderly is the last movie jerry lewis who did, did before who he created directing. screwball squirrel tex avery tex avery is who i was thinking yeah of. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tex avery. but frank tashlin directed the disorderly orderly and you could see that it influenced jerry lewis's directing style he had not directed his own movie up till that point jerry lewis disorderly orderly was the last yeah. thing he did with another director but that sequence you're talking about where the gurney goes down this hill it's so funny because it's the most absurd chase sequence <laughs> because this hill goes on for like 10 minutes <laughs> this hill does not end it's the longest hill in the history of hollywood yeah. Yeah. where he falls out of the back of this uh, ambulance, an ambulance and then crashes into a grocery store and then cans come flying out of the grocery store <laughs> on their own propulsion for there's, like minutes. There's just cans yeah. flying into the parking lot. I don't know if this was intentional or not, but there's a lot of the disorderly orderly in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. There's a lot of that right. level of... Absurdness, uh, yeah, yeah. The fire in the pet store is a very Frank Tashlin kind of sequence. Now, you gentlemen all have been thrown together by fate. Is that what you call Joel these days? People don't, yeah. That's what I've always called him. He's changed his name. Ted Fate. You're the new cast of Mystery Science Theater 3000. How did that all happen? Very, very excitedly, the new cast. That's exactly what people thought when they heard Black Tom Servo. Yeah, finally. (laughs) Beatboxing. The the hip hop coming directly out of his mouth. Well, he wasn't going to. Well, he wasn't going to be Crow. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> that's like the old joke about uh, William Conrad. Remember the show Jake and the Fat Man? Yeah. yeah. They call William Conrad. Yeah, it's a new show called Jake and the Fat Man. You're not Jake. <laughs> <laughs> Fatty Arbuckle versus regular Arbuckle. <laughs> <laughs> was a, there was a joke on The Simpsons once. And I don't. I don't know who wrote it tonight. Blackula versus Black Dracula. Oh yeah, I remember uh, that. That's not even the Blackula joke. I specifically remember from The Simpsons, what, and that's what, what so great that there's the multiple. One? The other one is like uh, it was like our Saturday morning programming today featuring Blackula, Blackenstein, and the Blunch Black a Bloater Blame. <laughs> Oh, wow. That has probably stayed with me. Wow. I don't even remember that. Well, lunch blast. For the blunt black, a bloater blame. And then I think Homer says something like, oh. 
It's amazing that Count Chocula looks like Fred Astaire. He has no Chocu-centric features. Yes. <laughs> That's very true. Boo Berry, not very boo. Here's what I love about Boo Berry. It's the mascot of a children's cereal, and it's a dead guy who likes berries. <laughs> He's also mentally challenged. Well, yeah, well, Frank, yeah, so, Frankenberry is profoundly learning disabled. Yeah. He's profoundly. Frankenberry gets, exci- huh. Frankenberry gets excited to go to Denny's on his birthday. Um, he keeps drowning children in the pond. <laughs> they want berries at the bottom. Yeah. Of the pond. He's just drowning kids in milk. <laughs> Frankenberry. Oh, that's brilliant. You know, people- his lungs are full of milk. We know who this was. <laughs> The scene in Frankenstein where he throws a little girl into the lake is shot at this so big great. lake up in Malibu, and people are getting married there all the time, and they have their photos. Really? They have their photos. Do they have like a? Do they put a floating right. dummy behind them? <laughs> That's a famous spot where a girl in a movie got drowned. Yeah, wow. and I heard they tried to edit it so where it was like, no, the girl just drowned. Frankenstein didn't drown her, but like they tried to make it lighter, and then it made it way more. Yeah, horrifying. well, they cut. Yeah. They cut it. They, when the production code came in, they cut it completely. It got restored years later. <laughs> when I know way too much Frankenstein about. throttled that girl, they kept it in. Try to get them in the movie today, and then the hero drowns a baby. You know, he was not the hero, but he's like, yeah, he drowns a kid. It's good. <laughs> hey, Frankenstein hey. is the fucking hero of Frankenstein. Yeah, it's like how my dad would argue. Like, hey, I, one thing I know. Yeah. <laughs> Frankenstein's definitely yeah. the hero. Give him respect. His name's in the title. <laughs> but it's not. It's the doctor. Not. He's the monster. When people slam Jerry Lewis, especially people of my uh, generation who just only know him as a guy who makes sexist comments or puts the glass around his mouth or a pompous guy who says, moreover, the way I can defend him or at least uh, suggest people get into him is to see movies like The Disorderly Orderly Nutty Professor on the big screen. I went to a retrospective at the Cine Family. They showed all of his movies from the early 60s on 35 millimeter. The first night they showed uh, Nutty Professor was sold out. It was amazing. The composition, the colors, it was horrible. Yeah. Incredibly yeah. Uh, aesthetically, you could see what the French were saying when they talk about him being a great filmmaker. Because I realize now, all these years later, we grew up with Jerry Lewis movies on TV being rerun. But in France, they showed them in theaters, reissues on the big screen. So these people were being exposed to him as a guy who knew how to uh, set up aesthetics. You know? Yeah, yeah. And that's why they considered him a genius, not because he was putting a glass in his mouth. Well, people mostly, I think, people under seventy know Jerry Lewis on the telethon. Right. And it's like if you only knew Paul McCartney from Say, Say, Say. (laughs) No, this guy did a lot of amazing stuff. (laughs) Jerry Lewis was super prolific. So anybody who's super prolific cranks out a lot of shit. And some people just live too long. Guys who were funny... In the late 50s and early 60s, there's almost none of them that are funny today. There's one exception, and that's Mel Brooks. I can't think of anybody else from that era who holds up today in current day if you were sitting across from them that would still make you... uh, Well, I will... I'm going to say this because I can. Yeah. I was recently at a dinner with Don Rickles, and he was hilarious. Yes. Don Rickles is hilarious, but I will say... Whoever made the food, it wasn't good. (laughs) (laughs) That Don Rickles impression sounds a lot like the Rodney impression. Yeah, well, I, there's a, certain people that I can't do. I just, I just give them a <laughs> just graphic a voice. generic old guy voice. Yeah, generic old, Rosie O'Donnell, same voice. <laughs> I did a thing, uh, some NPR show in New York, and I was talking about how comedy generationally there's always a divide where young people don't find the older. The biggest divide fun. is comedy and NPR. <laughs> <laughs> That's point well taken. But I was saying, you know, things don't age well, and the host, very NPR, was like, "Well, what about Jack?" Jack Benny. 
Jack Benny's still funny. No, he's not. <laughs> and, I said, and I said, he's still funny to you because you're 70 and you grew up yeah. on it and it's established to you that he's funny. But if you tried to hip your grandchild to Jack Benny and said, this is comedy, they'd be shrugging their shoulders going, yeah. I don't get it. You know, I've angered a lot of people by saying Charlie Chaplin has never made me laugh once. Yeah, it's funny. And the Marx Brothers make me laugh. With this book, I'm trying to like connect the dots where there's a through line because I never really caught on to the through line. Like, remember when the comedy store first opened? The walls were decorated with murals of Charlie Chaplin and yeah. W.C. Fields. There's nothing to do with anything yeah. that's going on inside yeah, that it could club. could not be yeah. further away from Billy Braver. Yeah, I was in Nebraska. I don't even know the name of the club. And the murals on stage are W.C. Fields, Charlie Chaplin, and Groucho Marx. None of them have anything to do with anything that I'm doing. Yeah. and they No connection to contemporary stand-up whatsoever. They weren't even stand-ups. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They weren't even stand-ups. Yeah. Well, with this book, I try and, and It'd be and, like, you, you, it's like dots, if you go to but... the Viper Room and behind the stage is like Brahms, Mozart. <laughs> 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 well, what do you think? <laughs> I want to get into what etched the mold for what people think of as stand-up comedy now, yeah. which is when in the midst of these stars in these presentation houses, and then suddenly in the 50s as film noir is already well-established and jazz is becoming bebop and the beatnik movement is affecting literature and suddenly stand-up comedy has these people that are doing things that nobody is doing on stage and they're doing them in places that nobody has done them. Right. And traditional stand-up comedians don't know what to make of it and what to do with it. And they were known oddly as the sick comics, yeah. which came from uh, Jules Pfeiffer. That's right. The King Kong of the sick comics is Lenny Bruce. He wasn't the first person to really do it. It was Mort Saul, I think. Well, it was kind of like any artistic movement. It was concurrent and simultaneously, right. but unintentionally. Just yes. like any great artistic movement, you don't realize you're in a renaissance till decades later when I, a historian I, yeah. says it was a renaissance. So yeah. Lenny Bruce, Mort Saul, and Jonathan Winters were simultaneous. Lenny Bruce started doing stand-up before any of them, but as a presentation house comic. Yeah. And Lenny Bruce is interesting that way, whereas most stand-ups would start in a strip club and work their way to a big theater. Bruce started in a theater and then worked his way back to strip clubs because he realized right. he was not meant for presentation presentation houses he would do his james cagney impression i think he did uh, yeah he was a terrible terrible hack yeah i think he performed before he became lenny bruce yeah he played a place called the strand which was a very important presentation house in new york seated about 2500 people and he bombed the movie he was with was like forever amber or something like that like some romantic hollywood film that you would not expect lenny bruce to be opening for i think people who martyr lenny bruce and consider him a legend even get the story a little bit wrong people talk about how he was very important at breaking boundaries in terms of language and talking about religion and that's true but i don't think that's really what was important about him i think what was important about him was his style of stand-up which is the same style of stand-up that most people do today which is talking about your experience about your day about your life and i use this example in the book about how in the 40s a comedian jack carter maury amsterdam would go up on stage and say hey did you hear the one about the sailor and the lady seems there was this sailor whereas lenny bruce would go up on stage and goes you know man i used to be a sailor and i was with this lady right now that seems like a subtle shift but it was like a revolutionary shift and that's why lenny bruce to me is important because everybody followed after lenny bruce talking about their day talking about themselves more Saul talked about his politics prior to that it was taboo to talk about your politics because it was thought you would alienate the audience right so a guy like will 
Rogers or Bob Hope would talk about the president's golf game, but they wouldn't criticize the president or talk about politics the right. way Mort Saul did. So that was yeah. another. The thing about Lenny Bruce that drives me crazy, not about Lenny specifically, is the people who know to reference him only talk about the stuff that he did that wasn't funny. Right, right, <laughs> you right. know, here's the thing. Lenny Bruce was hilarious when he started to get arrested and go to court and uh, that started to wear him down. Right. And Lenny Bruce was not funny reading the transcript of his trial on stage, but that's what people hold up as the thing about him that was Well, great. we don't really have a proper record of Lenny Bruce. None at all. None I mean, at all. There's five or six LPs, but by virtue of the time period, he had to do a sanitized version of what he did on stage for yeah. recordings. Even though they were on a jazz label, they were still quite sanitized. When he did the Steve Allen show, it was fairly sanitized. And then the the performance film is, like you said, the court record stuff. So we don't really yeah. have so much of it must have been about that live energy that we're yeah. talking about that gets lost in translation. So it's almost impossible to turn a young person on to Lenny Bruce. And, you know, you tell them about the legend, then they listen to the record and they go, really? Yeah. Part of it is also probably what I call the curse of Robert Klein, which is you can be too influential, so much so that you yourself lose the wind underneath you. So people- I think that is brilliantly put. And that is so true about Robert. If Lenny Bruce and Mort Saul was the original mold for what we think of now as contemporary stand-up comedy. The the first thing out of that mold that was sanded to perfection was Robert Klein. Yeah, I saw Robert at the improv last time he was in town. I want to be the kind of boy that 94 can boast about. Unbelievable. <laughs> but most of the people in the audience were established Robert Klein fans, which sure. were about his age. There was another table of people behind me, all young kids that were in town for some reason. Right. They were not into it at all. But part of it is because Klein was doing airline material and this crowd of kids was like, oh, it's very like yeah. bad version of Jerry Seinfeld. And I'm like, no, yeah. wait, it's no, the other way it's around. It's the other way around. Yeah, yeah so. absolutely, absolutely. So. Lenny Bruce, it was more than him talking about his trials or he did amazing things about race and his own experience in being a junkie. I mean, he was <laughs> a big, big, big influence on Lenny Bruce was the fact that he was a heroin addict. Well, not um, only that, that in turn ended up influencing other people in comedy who wanted to emulate Lenny Bruce. Yeah. Uh, well, those people are fools. <laughs> yeah. No, but it, a lot of the... Not a lot of great stories come out of heroin lot, use. No, but a lot of the early uh, Second City people who did have drug problems were influenced by Lenny Bruce. Everybody yeah. at the Second City was trying to emulate that style of uh, honesty or controversy right. and guys like Del Close and yeah, John Brandt. That's who I was thinking. John Brandt was the other guy. They became real uh, junkies. And then yeah. the committee, when they started in San Francisco, the same thing. They were romancing the idea of being a heroin addict or a morphine addict like Lenny Bruce. Yeah, but Lenny Bruce said things in the 60s that you couldn't say, like bits how to relax your colored friends yeah, at parties. Yeah, classic, yeah, of course. Which is a classic bit and still pretty relevant. Yeah. Just now. In the 21st century. Yeah, definitely. Starting to become irrelevant. Yeah. His simple bit about a lot of guys, uh, was, I never make it with a black chick, or however he would phrase it at the time in the, in the patois. It was like, okay, you can sleep with Eartha Kitt or Kate Smith. Right, it was, right. You know, it was along those lines. And that wasn't, you couldn't do that in those days. Lenny was, Bruce is considered a revolutionary for a reason. I don't think that's incorrect or inaccurate. I think sometimes people lionize him for the wrong reasons. I think they always lionize him for the wrong reasons. Yeah. And 
And the things that people always reference in terms to the quality of his output is never the great thing. It's like, right. you know, the Beatles, you got to listen to Old Brown Shoe to really <laughs> know what they were about. Twist and shout. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, that's actually not what made them great. Yeah, no, um, absolutely. And Lenny Bruce, when he was being criticized in the press in the 50s, one of the things that they frequently chastised him for was rambling. Lenny Bruce rambles at the world, which is again what they were criticizing was a new style of stand-up he wasn't going up with his rehearsed jokes today all the comedians quote-unquote ramble in the opinion of that critic that was the new style and it's the style that exists today so essentially he created modern stand-up comedy as we know it along with mort Saul and along with jonathan winters these guys who had a brand new approach in the early 50s that was akin to these other artistic movements and the other thing that lenny bruce would do that is carried on these traditional presentation house comedians, Joey Bishop, Jack Carter, would do 25 minutes for their life. Yeah. They would get 25 minutes. That's right. And they would do it. And Lenny Bruce would get 25 minutes, perfect it, and throw it away. It's funny. There's still guys like that today that we know who do yeah. the same 40 minutes for their entire life. And right. then these other guys who are so prolific that they're throwing stuff out. And, but- and I find, especially now with the internet, you know, I'll go into Denver and then I'll do a show in Denver. And then a year later, I'll come back and, and it's like, it was great. I really liked how you changed up some of the business. 75% of it is new. And I really like the way you changed the remaining 20 right. minutes. Right. What? Jesus Christ. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. People are paying a lot more attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. you know, you can. I would not dare go back with the same exact set. <laughs> they come from miles to enjoy our intermission. So, ladies and gentlemen. Here is a very shocking comedian, the most shocking comedian of our time, a young man who is skyrocketing to fame, Lenny Bruce. Lenny Bruce. Like his cultural soulmate Bob Dylan, or George Gershwin, or Pablo Picasso, or the list goes on and on, he took an entire art form, tore it apart, and remade it in his own image. Born Leonard Alfred Schneider in upstate New York, Lenny's parents divorced when he was so young he could barely remember them together. As a teenager, he spent some time on a farm and liked it so much, he enlisted in the Navy and fought in World War II just to get away from it. Lenny served with distinction on the SS Brooklyn. He saw action in Northern Africa and at Anzio. But following an impromptu comedy performance for his crewmates that happened to have been performed in drag, his commanding officer thought Lenny might be homosexual. And Lenny did everything he could to convince his commanding officer that he was correct. And so Lenny was discharged dishonorably. He appealed and it was later changed to under honorable conditions, but unsuitable for service. Lenny started his comedy career in New York, but in the early days was considered a capable but uninspired performer. At the behest of his mother, Sally Marr, Herself a stand-up comic and singer-dancer, Lenny made his national radio debut in 1948 on Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts. It got him work in some very traditional venues, the hotels up in the Catskill Mountains, what they call the Borscht Belt, but Lenny's heart wasn't in it. It was around this time that Lenny met and fell in love with Harriet Joliffe, a stripper with the stage name Honey Harlow. And somewhere along the way, Lenny and Honey fell in love with heroin and people addicted to heroin 
do silly things. There were kids, eight and nine years old, that were sniffing airplane glue to get high on. Hello, Schindler. Nice the way you got here. Give me uh, nickels with the pencils, big boy tablet, some juju beans, tailspin Tommy book, and 2,000 tubes of airplane glue. Lenny had an idea to make money by posing as a priest, Brother Matthias, and in the name of the Brother Matthias Foundation, began raising money for a leper colony in New Guinea. He raised a lot of money, but he kept most of it, and that's illegal. He and Honey also got into a brutal car accident that nearly killed them both. And so, shaken and chastened by the law, they said goodbye to the East Coast and headed west. They first moved to San Francisco, where Lenny returned to stand-up and began to develop what would become his quite revolutionary style. Rapid-fire, stream-of-conscious, off-the-cuff improvisations, the vocal equivalent of bebop. It even took its name from jazz, riffing. Like a lady can't go through a plate glass window and go to bed with you five seconds later. But guys can have head-on collisions with Greyhound buses in disaster areas. Everybody's laying dead on the highway. Not only the hospital, in the ambulance, the guy makes play for the nurse. Lenny, Honey, and their new daughter Kitty were onto something, but they weren't quite there yet. So they moved south to Los Angeles. The greased-up, jazzed-up, pilled-up, hopped-up, beatnik-driven, bongo-narrated Los Angeles of the late 1950s. And in Los Angeles, Lenny followed his wife back into strip clubs. Strip clubs. You see, despite having worked in the upscale hotels of the Catskill Mountains and at the Hungry Eye in San Francisco, Lenny Bruce purposefully chose the lowest rung available on the comedy ladder, emceeing strip joints. And there, among society's outcasts, jazz bows, beatniks, strippers, hookers, pimps, and other pill-popping fiends, Lenny discovered himself. With nobody looking, Lenny Bruce reached down inside of himself and pulled out an artist. Among society's outcasts, Lenny Bruce became their tribune. He was raw, he was filthy, he was brilliant, and he talked about things no other comedian dared discuss. Of how do you relax colored people at parties? And in the bit, I play the white guy. <laughs> I didn't get your name. Miller. Miller, my name is Anderson. Anderson, glad to know you. Pleasure indeed, sir. Mm-hmm. Pleasure indeed. <laughs> you know that Joe Lewis was a hell of a fighter. <laughs> Credit your race. Don't you forget it, you son of a gun. Well, thank you very much. That's perfectly all right. Uh, here's the Bojangles. Yeah, here's the Bojangles. What about that guy? Uh, you know that guy in a cream of wheat box? <laughs> no, I don't know him on the cream of wheat box. Oh, uh, well. Here's the Stanton Fetcher. Yeah, here's the Stanton Fetcher. At the height of the civil rights movement, Lenny Bruce did bits about race on stage that I don't think you could even get away with today. Uh, by the way, are there any niggers here tonight? Are there any niggers here tonight? Is he that desperate for shock value? Are he scraped the bottom round to be that cruel to say, are there any niggers here tonight? Are there any niggers here? I know I'm working with a nigger. 
Well, I think I see one nigger couple back there between those two niggers to three kikes. Thank God for the kikes. And two spicks and one mick. We have two spicks, one mick, three kikes, and one spunky, funky, hunky. Any more boogies? Three more sheenies, eight more guineas, six guineas, seven wops, six grease balls. I pass the six dykes, four kikes, and eight niggers. The point... Lenny Bruce used his powers for good. He took down people in positions of authority, hypocrisy, racism, and his controversial filthy brilliance catapulted into stardom. Despite being one of the most famous stand-up comedians of all time, I think, I think, he only made about six television appearances. At the peak of his success, on February 4th, 1961, one month after John F. Kennedy was sworn into office, Lenny Bruce performed a midnight concert at Carnegie Hall. Despite a blizzard so brutal it caused a driving ban in New York City, 3,000 people walked through two feet of snow and packed out the joint to listen to Lenny Bruce riff until two in the morning. Great story if it ends there. It doesn't. The problem is, by taking on people in positions of power, Lenny Bruce made a lot of enemies in positions of power. And his drug habit left him very, very vulnerable. On October 4th, 1961, Lenny was arrested while performing at the jazz workshop in San Francisco for obscenity. In the words of Bruce biographer Paul Krasner, Lenny used the word cocksucker to describe a cocksucker and was arrested for aptness in language. He was acquitted, but the word was out. Lenny Bruce was an easy mark and it'll get your name in the paper for doing it. And Lenny Bruce's audiences began to be filled not only by fans, but by undercover police officers waiting to arrest him. He was arrested in Philadelphia for drug possession. He was arrested in Los Angeles, in West Hollywood, for saying the word schmuck. Nowhere is the persecution of Lenny Bruce more perfectly symbolized than in the case of the famous Gate of Horn nightclub in Chicago. Lenny, at the time, free on bail from his arrest in Los Angeles, was preparing to perform at the preeminent nightclub in the Windy City. The very beautiful, very hip, very Catholic, Windy City. Before he ever entered the club, the Chicago Police Vice Squad warned the club's owner that if Lenny Bruce used four-letter words in their club or spoke out against religion in any way, he would arrest everyone in the club and suspend their liquor license. To quote, he mocks the Pope, and I'm speaking as a Catholic. You're in danger of losing your license. The Vice Squad had men in the show at every show. Guess what? Lenny Bruce was arrested, and the Gate of Horns liquor license was suspended. Chicago had the largest membership in the Roman Catholic Church of any archdiocese in the country. At the trial, Lenny, a Jew, faced a jury consisting entirely of Catholics. The judge was Catholic. The prosecutor and his assistant were Catholic. Variety reported, the prosecutor is at least equally concerned with Bruce's indictments of organized religion as he is with the more obvious sexual content of the Comics Act. It's possible that Bruce's comments on the Catholic Church have hit a sensitive nerve in Chicago's Catholic-oriented administration and police department. One might say that is accusation by understatement. The jury found Lenny guilty. The judge gave him the maximum penalty, a year in jail and a $1,000 fine, basically for telling dirty jokes. He was arrested 15 times within the next two years. By this time, his battles with the law were consuming him. 
he felt persecuted, probably because he was being persecuted. He was being hounded out of existence, and it showed on stage. His once brilliant act had devolved into a long, rambling commentary on his battles with the law. You've got the attorney for the people, you've got the attorney for the defense. Let me tell you something about attorneys. Well, any kind of, the best attorneys are the attorneys that do it every day. And in the administration of criminal justice, they had the, the broad, broad field. The best attorneys were the Justice Department, the, yeah, the, the a DA that's been with it for 10 years, forget it, called coming near him. Nowhere was safe for Lenny Bruce. In April of 1964, he was arrested during a performance at the Cafe Agogo in Greenwich Village. Along with the club's owners, this was intentional. The police were trying very hard to discourage anyone from hiring him. His trial dragged on for six months. He was convicted on obscenity charges and sentenced to four months in a workhouse. His case went on appeal. But before it was resolved, on August 3rd, 1966, Lenny Bruce was found dead in his home in the Hollywood Hills. The cause was acute morphine poisoning, an overdose. The police, on his ass, even in death, allowed the press in to photograph him lying naked, bloated, and dead on his bathroom floor, the needle still dangling out of his arm. But Lenny Bruce, like Obi-Wan Kenobi, became more powerful in death than he ever was in life. The doors he broke down were never closed again. They stayed down. Lenny Bruce lived in an America where you could get arrested for saying cocksucker on stage. And the fact that that seems so ridiculous now is thanks only to him. His tombstone reads, Beloved father, devoted son, peace at last. All along. All alone, I'll be rich, but so all alone. Yes, there's an air about hot coffee that's hard to resist. Full-bodied, refreshing hot coffee makes any time a pleasant interlude. Won't you have some now? Let's say you want to start your Lenny Bruce education. Well, first of all, you need Cliff Nesteroff's book, The Comedians. Drunks, thieves, scoundrels, and the history of American comedy. Then you need the following CDs. The Essential Lenny Bruce, Volumes 1 and 2. And the Carnegie Hall Concert. Where do you get all this stuff? Well, you log on to the Information Superhighway and you check out DanaGould.com. From there, you click on our Amazon banner and you shop away. You get everything you need and for not one extra penny, we get a few shekels to keep the lights on here at Falcon's Lair Recording Studios. While at DanaGould.com, you can become a member of our podcasting family by donating. It's just like a real family, only we don't hate each other. Or you could truck on over to ComedyFilmNerds.com, spelled like it sounds. And get your fill of Bavilacqua heating and air conditioning t-shirts, Dana Gould Hour t-shirts, signed vinyl albums, CDs, DVDs, and Ben Walker's excellent Dana Gould Hour poster. All signed by yours truly. 
for the comedy film nerd in your life, especially if it's you. Speaking of you, I know for me and for many of us, shaving is a pain. It's uncomfortable. And razor blades are outrageously expensive. And they're protected at the pharmacy as if they were handguns. Harry's was started by two guys who wanted a better product without paying an arm and a leg for it. Harry's makes their own blades, high-quality, high-performing German blades crafted by shaving experts. They offer a high-quality shave that's better for your face and for your wallet. Harry's blades are about half the price of the other big-branded blades, and they ship for free to your front door. Here's exciting news from Harry's. They've officially launched two new products, Foaming Shave Gel, which I think is necessary, no, essential to shaving, and aftershave moisturizer. The starter set is an amazing deal. For $15, you get a razor, foaming shave gel, and three razor blades. So go to harrys.com right now. They'll give you $5 off if you type in my coupon code, Dana, D-A-N-A, with your purchase. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Enter the coupon code Dana and check out for $5 off. And start shaving better today. And remember, save your whiskers. We need them for the war effort. Make sure you get yours and enjoy it now. Welcome to Political Talk with two guys from Boston. A working man's look at the socio-political issues of our day. And now, Political Talk with two guys from Boston. This is Political Talk with two guys from Boston. Johnny Condon. Robbie Sullivan here. Oh, God, it's cold. Yeah, it is cold. Well, you, you think the summer will never end, and then it's winter the next day. <laughs> I know. We're cool if you are cool. It doesn't oh, really God. work right now. I walked out of the house and my nipples went, I'm going to stay in today. <laughs> I think, you know, they, I have, used to have one of those uh, water bottles. And my mother, when I was growing up, she'd put hot water in it in the winter and, and hand that to us and be like, good luck. Because <laughs> we had no heat on. We were like wear another sweater. What were hot water bottles for? I think they're for, like, help your stomach or something if you're not feeling well. But she gave it to us as, like, a heating element. But, or was it was it for feminine uh, flushing? No. Is that right? Well, they, where does it... We used to call people a douche nozzle. <laughs> hey, douche nozzle. We're, we're riding... We're, hey, douche nozzle. So must we're going to ride our thing. bikes to the drugstore. Are you coming? So it had to have been, like, a, maybe it was, like, a madman era. Yeah. But there are certain things that you would do. Yeah, there's, like, like, there's an ice pack version of it. Yeah, like putting an ice pack on your head does not help a headache. Uh, tying an ice pack to you does not help a toothache. Yeah, if you see there's the always, drawing of that, it's, yeah. it's normally it from the 30s. In, yeah, if it was <laughs> in a cartoon not, in Playboy, it's yeah, not going to help exactly. you. Exactly. The drawing of that big, yeah. huge ice pack that you can fit like yeah. some ice, and then you put a little water in. If you have a loose tooth, it's very easy, or a toothache. It's very simple what you do. Tie, Tie a, a string to your tooth. <laughs> Attach it. I I can't help thinking there's an easier way. <laughs> it really is the 
uh, who's the yogi and boo-boo? It's the yogi and boo-boo health answers. Yeah, exactly. That's what they go to. They would tie the tooth. Yeah. If if you have a health issue that requires you purchase a mail-order rocket (laughs) and tie a string, I tied one string to my pancreas and another to an Acme mail-order rocket. (laughs) It's yogi and boo-boo's guide to health. Oh, you know, my mother, any shit you can order out of a magazine. Oh, yeah, as long as it's educative. Yeah. And so she's going to learn from it. And then she has a prescriptions, which are real. I know. I've seen them. And then she shovels in 40 pounds of mail order goop. <laughs> and it's basically like, you know, a, a grass clipping, oh, yeah. crushed up lobster claw. Sure. It's, Self-leveling grass seed. Yeah. And they all just counteract each other. And this is, this is a typical thing for my mother. Well, I went to my doctor today and he told me I needed to lower my blood pressure and I needed to change my heart pills. So he gave me two new prescriptions and I'm supposed to take them both every day. Oh, and then I go God. to my head. Three, two, one. But what I'm going to do. <laughs> no, no. Uh-oh. People have that weird thought. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing at this and that's the thing that will make me great at it. <laughs> gonna, it's my exploration yeah. that will excel. The fact that I've never done surgery is the thing that will make me a wonderful surgeon. I'll be. <laughs> no. No, wait. I think you might have got that mixed up. Do what they tell you to do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just. Oh, God, it, it makes How me... How old's mom now? She's a million and six. That's nice. Yeah. She just sits around, Where watches... Where do you find the, the candles? <laughs> I know. So many... The house is just so many statues of mice in old-timey sleeping shirts. <laughs> There's literally a thousand mice holding candles in sleepy shirts. Oh, that's great. My mother's house is full of angels. Right. Who look tired. Well, they're all angels. It would be weird, though, if it was full of statues of dead kids, which are what (laughs) angels are, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, how do you know if you become, like, you go in the army and you can be an officer or an infantryman or, uh, like, somebody off or a douche nozzle. Or a douche nozzle. Yeah. Is that like when you die? Okay, you can be an angel or a ghost or a zombie. You have to pick. (laughs) Or do they do it now? You take a test. Yeah, you don't get to see what it's like. It's so weird. No, yeah, it, it's, it's like all a camp. It. You eat archery, or you get to shoot a twenty-two, or you ride mini bikes. What are you going to choose? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you want to be build a canoe, or yeah. do you want to dig the new outhouse? Everyone's doing something. All the winter sports are very expensive. Oh yeah, you can't skate in a hockey team no. in Massachusetts unless you're willing to pay like the six hundred dollars for the ice yeah. time. And these inner city kids cannot play hockey. No, you can't play tennis. You can't play. You can't go skiing. Yeah. It's they're all priced out. You're right. We need a good we so we need a good cost friendly winter sport. So what are you thinking? I don't know. I'm just something sledding? Something, 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 ice balls, something. <laughs> all right, we can start with that. Like an Olympic event. Yeah. Through an ice ball, Johnny. I gotta oh. tell you something. As it leaves your hand, the entire world begins to move in slow motion. And as I watch the tiny minute changes of the nun's face before oh, it hits yeah. her, I realize this isn't gonna end well. I I true story. I was with my brother and we were walking home. From playing hockey, yeah, going by the foundry, sure. My brother had an ice ball. Oh like, yeah, he's like polishing. A, it. it was like a candle pin bowling ball. <laughs> and and we were going by the foundry, and there was—I'll never forget this. There was a guy 
driving a forklift Uh-oh. by the foundry, and my brother hucks <laughs> this ice ball. Oh, and, no. Which and the brother? minute, Pat, and the minute the ice ball left his hand, a, a gray cloud of guilt descended <laughs> upon us. <laughs> like, it was like That's we it. knew. It was like that Oswald <laughs> yeah, trigger pull. Like, oh, this is the one. Half a second too late. And that thing went sailing, and it Pop that guy right in the ear. Oh, jeez. That's And terrible. the guy must have, speaking of Oswald, must have felt like Jack Kennedy, like, this is yeah. it! Like, <laughs> and it was the first time an adult screamed, fuck you at us. Oh, nice. And it's scary when you're a kid, but yeah. an adult driving a four, goes, fuck you! <laughs> and he you really know gave, they're and, coming to your house oh, to talk to mom and, and dad. Every letter, it's all, fuck Every letter got its full due. Oh, well, he really used it well. We ran. Oh, my Lord. We still, we don't even talk about it. It's like that thing that will go unspoken. Yeah. We we hit that guy in the ear with the ice ball. We used to throw, you know, snowballs at cars, and then, you you know, you'd hope that they're going to get out and run after you. It sounds weird, but it's that energy of like, what a day we had. Oh, there was stuff that we. Chased by people in a car. There was stuff that we would do that I can't believe, like. Like we used to like run out behind cars, yeah, in the in the snow, Skitch. yeah, and yeah. we just Skitch. grab the fender of a car and get dragged Slide along the road, along the icy road. <laughs> I did it too. Yeah, we used uh, to go to yeah. school. That cars way. coming behind you. And sometimes you get the little wink of like, I know you're there. But we'll get you there safe. Like yeah. really? Yeah. <laughs> I hope there's not a car behind you. It's harder to skitch now with people <laughs> exactly. texting and driving. Wow. You come home and you find an eyeball in your fender. Something we, happened. Well, we we would drive out to Zavieri. Brothers High School. Sure. So we had a little bit of a trip, and one of my uh, other sophomores, older brothers, was a senior, and he had a big wooden bumper on the front of his station wagon, you know, like a wooden bumper, like a huge piece of wood. And I, I couldn't figure out what the hell it was for until he started driving us to school, and he's hitting all the trash barrels on trash day with this <laughs> big wooden bumper. And because the in Westwood, the homes are like a little bit set down in this place that we would drive yeah. past. So all the trash barrels were brought up to the top and he would hit them into their yard. <laughs> and as as like, whatever, 10th graders, we, it was really like you were murdering. Oh, it was like you had committed a murder and now you're at school sure that they're going to say, would the following students please come to the office? Like sure. you just positive you were going to get called out. We used to go up to Menden and drive down the street, and my brother, Pat, again, <laughs> how odd that when he joined the Army, they made him a sniper. He had sniper eyes. You saw it coming. He had sniper eyes. <laughs> like, you know, it's, you know here's, here's Pat. You go into an animal rescue, and all the animals rush up to the front, like, me, take me, take me. You go into an animal rescue with Pat, they're all like, no, I'm good, I'm happy here, I'm fine. No, I'm totally good here. They can sense the danger. You go to the pets where fish would swim away from the tank. Let's go, I don't like the, let's go hang over by the charcoal. Let's go over, I'm going to go in the castle for a while. That's funny. I'm going to go by the resin creature from the Black Lagoon statue. I don't know. I'm good. I'm good in here. Did you ever have to introduce him to a girlfriend? Oh, Jesus. No way. (laughs) His name should be Lee Harvey. We used to drive around, and he would just lean out the passenger window with a baseball bat and smack people's mailboxes off the stack. That's what I'm talking about. Boom. It's the kind of behavior. When you're in the car for it, you're like, oh, my God, I did this too. (laughs) I didn't do anything. I was just sitting in the back sucking my thumb, hoping not to get beat up again. And it's one of those things, like in heaven, they show you the clip. What was going on here? (laughs) Now, before you come in, I just want to know what was going through your mind on this one. Why were you here for this? 
Boy, like if you have a guardian angel and he's watching, he's like, well, my hands are tied. I don't know what I can do here. How did I end up with this ding dong? <laughs> he, he missed his pine tree talk. He was supposed to tell me not to do that. I missed the pine tree talk. I thought it was Tuesday. It was Wednesday. We were always told we had a guardian angel with us, but our guardian angel was either asleep on the job or hammered because <laughs> yeah. they just stood by while we did some awful stuff. I really think my guardian angel sold eights. <laughs> Yeah, really. My Sorry guy, I wasn't there. My guardian angels have spent a lot of time going, really, killing frogs with a BB gun. That's yeah, a childhood. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. you. I could never do that. You know, life is a gift. This yeah. is what you want to do with it? No, no, go ahead. I remember my friend saying to me, hold on one second, I'm just strapping this M80 to a frog. Yeah, we'll be fine. Uh, no, don't. I'm amazed there are still frogs in Massachusetts <laughs> after what we did. I think what that does is actually stimulate more frogs to come forward. It could be. You know? Like in Godzilla, yes. nature finds a balance. That's what it is. Yeah, they see one frog get blown up, every frog's horny. <laughs> the proximity of death recharges the right? batteries. Right, when you go to a funeral, life. everybody starts pairing up, and all of a sudden, oh, look who's auntie oh, leaving with. Yeah, the next this, thing you know, this, old Jed's a millionaire. <laughs> isn't this something? <laughs> isn't, isn't this fun? <laughs> Aunt... I, we lucky. We went to your uncle's funeral, and now I'm getting some in the back of a Gorelick milk truck. I haven't drank that much in a half a year. Funerals are the beautiful, beautiful combination of organ music, sadness, and cold cuts. <laughs> and there's always got to be somebody that's going to kiss that person oh, last. Oh, God bless him. Who's that? Who's going to kiss him last? I just stare and wonder. Someone's <laughs> going to go over and say, I kissed him. The very end. It is the weirdest thing. It's like people come up like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And it is, again, nature finds a balance. It's the answer to the stewardess at the, at the plane. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And I wonder if, if a stewardess's husband dies and she's by the casket. It's just like, I'm sorry. Thank you. I'm sorry. Thank you. I'm sorry. Thank you. I'm sorry. Thank you. I like that. That they're prepared for it. Did you get everything? Did you get check your overhead bin? Did you check the pocket seat pocket? Thank you for flying with us. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for coming to the funeral. Yeah, Please check the seat pocket in front of you. That would be weird if she kept saying that to every person. I'm so sorry. Thank you for flying. Thank you for flying. Thank you for flying with them. When was the last time you saw somebody really use a puke bag? Do they still put puke bags in they planes? They have them, yeah. I see them in there. I, I, I haven't seen one used in a long time. I think there should be more puke bags everywhere. You know, uh, one of the kids that works over at the thing putting in air conditioners with us, Jerry, he come out of the Marines, and he told me that's what they give him bags with powder in them over there, and they're not really? for puke. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's oh, all they my. get. Well, you know, the they said they trade with the Brits because the Brits have showers and toilets and stuff, so they'll like yeah. trade them gear. When you gotta to go, you gotta him. go. Yeah. You know, Neil Armstrong, when he walked on the moon, was wearing a diaper. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, because all of their EVA suits. What that's is, what they call. What does that mean? Extravehicular activity. Are you sure? Something. Yeah, it's that's something. something but that ain't it. Uh, early vampire arrival. All I don't right. know what I it believe was that more than the vehicular thing. But they, <laughs> they. If you notice when they're out floating in space, there's not a porto sand on a cable floating Good out point. there with them. When Good they had point. to go, they had to go. <laughs> so they just put them in their suits. Ah, oh, that's weird. So it's really a great moment for adult babies. <laughs> it's a step forward for mankind yeah. and one a small few step into for space. Man, one small step for man and one giant leap for people with pudding pants. <laughs> I got to leave a few friends in outer space. <laughs> <laughs> Political Talk with Two Guys from Boston. 
And now, on with the show. So uh, you watched it when oh. you were uh, in your mother's womb. I was in my 70s. You were all infants. I was about seven-ish. Yeah, and I remember it because I remember l- turning the TV on and seeing that there was a bad movie on, <laughs> but then also that there were seats on the television and there yeah. were people in the seats saying things that I would say. Right. That and was the same. Blew my it mind. Is, it is pretty yeah. weird the first time you see that and you go, what is this? Yeah, I'm the same way. It's I just came across it. I was just flipping through channels, saw a bad movie and noticed the silhouettes. No one I know has ever seen any of the host segments first. Well, you lost in space. He's Joel Robinson. Joel looks like Billy Mooney. Yeah, Joel does it is look pretty like fun Bill the whole like honoring right. like uh, people from like sci-fi's like last names. So Get your paws in me, you damn monkey. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to make Dana really uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, that's what he said. We're going to wrap it up. All right. Uh, I do want him to just go, my God, they had a Statue of Liberty too. (laughs) (laughs) Why would you build that also? What are the odds? It's exactly perfect. (laughs) Down to a T. (laughs) No, you, and this is the Mad Magazine. No, you, Claude. (laughs) Every fifth panel in Mad Magazine. No, you, Claude. Then why would you make dolls that duck? By the way, that's not the big He's like, well, yeah. I, know, I was talking monkey dolls here. The biggest one is where he's talking about the other astronaut, the, the girl. Like, uh, she yeah. was to be the new Eve. Yeah, yeah, I bet she thought she was the botanist. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's you and three yeah. guys. You're going to populate yeah. a planet. Apparently, yeah. this is planet of the mushheads. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've done any genetic research. Uh, uh, it went wrong. She's dead. We were going <laughs> to fuck her forever. <laughs> Well, we're going to scrap Operation New Eve and move into Operation Hold Down Landon. (laughs) John Chambers, who created all of the uh, makeup for Planet of the Apes, also created uh, a lot of the monsters on Lost in Space, Mr. Spock's ears, and now it's been acknowledged, built the Bigfoot suit that is in the famous footage. When did this come out? This is in the in that world that is widely known. Okay, what's the cover up? It, pl- it, it was a prank. It was just to see what they did. And what they've done is it was a screen test, maybe. No, it was Sheesh. exactly for what it was done. And what they've done is Weird, they've right? go online and look. They take the shake out of the camera, mm-hmm. and when you see it, it is clearly just a dude in a suit. That's fun. You know, John Chambers also was the portrayed by John Goodman in Argo. John Chambers kept mm. a lot of secrets. That's he interesting. He worked for the CIA mm. for years. Oh. One of the bits that I like a lot of mine, I think it's the best version of me stealing from George Carlin, which is, I did a bit on my last album, Stephen Hawking is the Beatles of scientists. And the Beatles represents the most important version you can be of a thing. Right. By that definition, the Rolling Stones are the Beatles of music. (laughs) John Lennon was the Beatles of the Beatles. Pete Townsend was not the Beatles of the Who. Keith Moon was the Beatles of the Who. (laughs) So when Mick Jagger writes about Pete Townsend, you have to believe him because only the Beatles of the Rolling Stones knows who the Rolling Stones of the Who is. That was always a big joke. Right. Here is the George Carlin piece that I have completely lifted that piece from. People say I have a friend who happens to be black. Really? Well, his parents were black and they fucked. 
then I don't think he happens to be black. I think it would be weird if he happened to be Lithuanian. People will say openly. I have a friend who is openly gay, but they never say openly black. James Brown is openly black. Colin Powell is not openly black. (laughs) Colin Powell is openly white. He happens to be black. It's the same rhythm. And that Beatles bit that I do killed, 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 and then stopped killing because – some of the life goes out of it. You got me. tired of it. I get tired of it. It's the same words. That's one of the. And re- I still think I'm yeah. performing it, but it's just bits have a lifespan. I, They're I, like flowers, and they die. No, it's true. <laughs> I killed off my entire act for that reason. Yeah, I used to do two acts in stand up. One which was a gimmicky character. One which was myself. Myself never popular. <laughs> Gimmicky character, huge sensation, cult following in, yeah. in Canada it was great. I'm still very proud of that. But there was a point where I could make a choice to either bomb or kill, and it depended on which act I was doing. I could be myself. I could bomb all the time. I could do my character. I could kill all the time. And I'm not saying this self-aggrandizingly. I'm just saying this as a strange phenomenon. When I would do the character for three years, I did nothing but kill with that character. I never had a bad show. Then after the three-year point, I got all this great press. I did a show once as that character, and I bombed. Like out of nowhere. And I was right. so thrown off by it. Sure. And so then I did the, another show and it did okay. And then another one bombed and then another one killed and another one bombed. But it, there was no consistency anymore. I was like, what the, how did this happen? This used to be fail safe. And I realized <laughs> that I was tired of doing it. It yep. had peaked and I was kind of phoning it in. Yeah. And so I realized, okay, it's time to kill this off while I'm ahead before anybody realizes what I'm realizing is that the life is petering out of this yeah. gimmicky thing. That is, I think, one of the things that ties what goes on in stand-up today to that original group of comedians in the in the uh, late 50s, early 60s, that they did turn it into self-expression. Lenny Bruce took a wrecking ball to the presentation houses the way Bob Dylan took a wrecking ball to Tin Pan Alley. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it became, and I'm going to use a really airy-fairy term, the comedian as artist. He's going to walk on stage and he's going to talk about his life and he's going to talk about yeah. his own experience. Yeah. And that is what the good ones do now. Richard Pryor did exactly what Lenny Bruce did, not only professionally in terms of his impact, but in terms of his personal life. He was a very traditional comedian that worked in nightclubs and then retreated in the way that Lenny Bruce uh, and the way that guys would start in strip joints and move into theaters, Lenny Bruce started in theaters and went into strip joints. A lot of comedians would start in coffee houses and want to get into big nightclubs. Yeah. Lenny, Richard Pryor started in nightclubs and then went back to little coffee houses. Yeah. George Carlin, same thing. If you're truly an artist, I think you will always be creative no matter what, but you will also know how to apply and reinvent yourself for each generation. This is the problem with Jerry Lewis, I think. I G- thought you were going to say <laughs> This is the problem with you. Because you were pointing to me. I was like, wow. what I think? What? <laughs> turned into the Joe Pine show all of a sudden. This is the problem with young men like you, Mr. Gould. <laughs> so you, uh, this is the problem with you. Such a guilty conscience. <laughs> no, Jerry Lewis, because Jerry Lewis has never reinvented his persona for his age. Whereas somebody yes. like George Burns... 
had multiple careers. He had a huge triumphant 30s and 40s career with Gracie Allen. When she died, he kind of became a producer, but he reinvented himself in the 70s and 80s with this old man playboy persona, which fit his age. Jerry Lewis has never reinvented himself to fit his age. He still goes up on stage and does the 50s character, which doesn't work when you're an old man. That's true. But like a good comedian who's a good artist, a Richard Pryor, a Lenny Bruce, a George Carlin, they reinvent themselves for each generation of each stage of america so george carlin people talk about how he switched from clean-cut comedian in the 60s to hippie comedian in the 70s but then he also he reinvented himself two more times yeah became observational guy in the 80s and then became loud angry guy in the 90s yeah and succeeded in all succeeded in all of them i am specifically uh such a fan of his. He's such a profound course, yeah. influence on me, as I have already admitted, <laughs> yeah. by blatantly stealing him. But what I find really interesting about him is that the observational comedy, he was lost as a human being. He was, right. he was lost as an artist. Yeah. He was this sort of the hippie persona and brilliant, incandescent yeah. on stage. And then the culture passed him by and his drug addiction prevented him from looking at who he was close enough to be able to turn himself inside out again. Mm-hmm. And I think he became a very, very effective observational comedian and ran on fumes for about 10 years. You know, it's funny. I think if he had not been George Carlin, if it was just some guy doing the same material that he did in the 80s, he would have been considered one of the great observational comedians of the comedy book. Absolutely. But because he was George Carlin compared to what he had done previously, he was kind of dismissed. It was beneath him. Yeah, it was beneath And there was like a famous, I can't remember if it was Rolling Stone or uh, Playboy, but in the 80s, they were dismissing George Carlin, saying this guy is a a has-been, a shadow of his former self. And even like when Rick Moranis parodied him on on SCTV, you know, it was kind of scathing. Like It It was was brutal. That's another thing that you can compare him to Lenny Bruce. The drugs might set you free, but they'll also really fuck you up. And a lot of that is just, yeah, you're doing too much cocaine. There's footage of Carlin doing stand-up on The Tonight Show in the 70s, clearly high on cocaine. Cocaine bombing, where he gets laughs the first 30 seconds yeah. and then his thoughts do not conclude to a punchline at all. Yeah. Like it's just set up, set up, set up, and he's talking a mile a minute. And it's kind of startling to see at the height of his power, like yeah. 75, just yep. kind of flailing about. Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of that. The footage of him on the Midnight Special from like 1972, right at Class Clown, where his ponytail is down to a, right. the, the bottom of his back, and he's performing in sunglasses. Right. He's right. so fucked up. He's, and he's just, and he's, Barely aware of the audience. Yeah. You know, it, it's amazing. The thing with Carlin that brought him out of that was Sam Kennison. Yeah. Kennison and Dice. He had to compete. Yeah. He saw Sam Kennison and he thought, oh shit, this guy is shopping in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And that's when he got angry. Fortunately for fans of George Carlin, you smarter than Sam. Yeah. Not only as a person, but as an intellect. Yeah. I think all of his best work started to come after you know all of the stuff that people remember as the brilliance all came later jamming in new york back in town i as a fan think his last special was one of his greatest and he's 72 years old i always wonder what it would have been like if all these great comedians from the 60s and 70s had not quit doing stand-up what would woody allen's act be like today larry david's act be like today albert brooks's act be like today eddie murphy's act be like today if they woody allen would just sing thank heaven for little girls Uh. (laughs) there's a lineage in comedy where the parents are Uh comedians and the kids are comedians like albert brooks bob einstein harry einstein it's interesting 
well, to me. And uh, what I find Bob it, Elliott, Chris Elliott, Abby Elliott, that's interesting yeah, to me. I find that interesting. They have one thing in common to me. Ben Stiller, Albert Brooks, and Chris Elliott. All of their parents were very successful comedians. All of their comedy is about comedy. Right. Take it, off on, on yeah, satirizing uh, showbiz. Satirizing specifically comedy. Yeah. None of those people do what we say as a traditional comedian, go up and talk about themselves. They would make fun of somebody doing that. They would do a parody of that. I think that's because you take your experience as the baseline and then you run off of it from that. How do you explain Um, uh, Larry Bishop? Joey Bishop's <laughs> I have all of his albums. Oh, okay. <laughs> and Bob and Ray, my God. Uh, there's not much Bob and Ray in my book because a book all about Bob and Ray came out while I was writing this book. Uh-huh. And I had to make some executive decisions of right. for space. But uh, And they were much more broadcast. They than, were radio comedians, yeah. but hilarious. Oh, but I have everything. I have everything. They're have- so unique that for me, they're one of the few uh, things of 50s comedy that transcends generational considerations. Yes, and I will say that Bob and Ray were what people think of as, quote, alternative comics, unquote, in the 50s. They would do things that only made them laugh. And my favorite memories of Bob and Ray, before I really got into them, I didn't really realize how cool they were until I heard them name-checked in an NRBQ song. (laughs) I was like, oh, I got to check these guys out some more. (laughs) They would go on The Tonight Show and tank but Carson would be pissing himself. Right. And Carson would be pissing himself because he knew they knew they were tanking and he knew that they didn't care. Right. And he thought that was amazing. You will not get that from any late night host in the current world. Yeah. Get it or don't. Yeah. <laughs> Bob and Ray were very unshowbiz. They were not guys yeah. who would do Vegas or wear no, tuxedos. They were, radio guys, they were radio guys in Worcester for a lot of their career. They yeah. were like right, right where I grew up. And a lot of stuff, it's like Monty Python. You laugh at it and you don't even know the references that they're doing. Right. Like I didn't know That's Right Awful was an Arthur Godfrey show thing. They did a huge things of Arthur Godfrey. I don't even know what they're making fun of. Well, they did bits that would only be funny to people who were showbiz savvy or broadcasting savvy. The famous joke about, and now to Wally Ballou in Pittsburgh. Ollie Baloo speaking, <laughs> you know, that's such yeah. a funny joke, but if you don't know broadcasting that, that, you know, then we'd frequently see that if you ever yeah. watch any live broadcast that happens all the time yeah, where the guy gets cut off, but what a smart kind of inside joke. People listening in yeah, the Midwest and, and, would not have got that. And parodies of radio shows. Yeah. The Tracer of Lost Persons. Yeah. Like Boy that. Spot Welder. <laughs> so funny. What Mystery Science Theater does is like very kind of specifically like yeah, it's going to be movie. Like I never knew any of the movies that yeah. they yeah, ever they're did. Unwatchable. Like yeah. when people go, oh, you know what a bad movie is? Norbit or something. You go, mm-hmm. no, no, you could drunkenly you can sit still Norbit. watch Norbit. You can't yeah. watch and the it, crawling eye yeah, or like you know, exactly. Like a lot also, of Norbit gets a pretty bad rap. It's a really funny movie. <laughs> I, I actually really like. Yeah, it's a, I actually it's really, really like Eddie Norbert. Murphy's always funny. He's even always if it's funny. a bad movie. Eddie Murphy funny. is yeah. always funny, and I really like Norbit. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, he yeah, plays no, such a good dork. He has a big dork side to him. Like he loves Star Trek and he loves all those things. Yeah. And so like there's when he a lot came of out in Delirious in that leather suit, I was like, what a dork. Well, he, <laughs> 
but, that's, but, that's, but he kept accusing gay people of looking at his ass. I was like, what a dork. We have to unpack that. He has all this affection for these people, but he's also super Joe Cool and also clearly in conflict about a lot of stuff. He says everything with such a smile and with such charm that you walk away going, wait a minute, was you know, I just supporting a horrible thought? It's like, he's basically writing on the first 20 minutes that everyone's so happy to see him. Yeah. And it's most of the bits are like, you would never see, like it's all just very- Well, you know, he never really had to grind out his stand-up True. the way Pryor did. Richard Pryor was a master because yeah. he had- was forged, yeah. <laughs> you know, Carlin and all and, and all those Richard people. Pryor, never a word out of place. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Down, True. Refined. Yeah, never sloppy. Um, <laughs> well, you know, actually, Pryor said in his uh, his autobiography, it's called Pryor Convictions, it's so hard to find, it's out of print. Hmm. He said he personally never cared for Eddie Murphy's stand-up. Wow. He said he always thought that Eddie Murphy's stand-up was mean. And he used to say to him, why don't you try being nice to people? And th- that yeah, wasn't although, Eddie's it thing. It kind of was yeah. a conflict. Although Richard Pryor's No, no. <laughs> yeah. But in his stand-up, he's really he's celebratory. Yes, he is. How you can tell that in Raw is the segue of every bit in Raw is, but in the 80s? Ah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, but it's, and it's casually used. A, a faggot can't buy bubble gum. It's just like, yeah. well, one, one yes, they can. And please stop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But it's so dated now. It's like when you watch a night gallery. Like, yeah. Ooh. The night gallery is so much more dated than the Twilight Zone, which is yeah. actually yeah. older than the night gallery. Artie Johnson is the devil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, so. <laughs> There's a lot of comics that are very of their time, and I tell them to be careful with that, speaking very millennial speak. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. I, and it's doing well for them, and I'm totally supportive of it. But then you remember guys like Barry Sobel, who was so <laughs> of his time, and then he had trouble <laughs> getting out of the fact that he was just like a real 80s like yeah, comic yeah. He, you know, he like really signified 80s and white boy rappers true. and BC boys I'd say that's and- like what Bo Burnham has been trying to like have to fight because he got his entrance into stand up through YouTube which is kind of like a blessing and a curse because yeah. he's actually much 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 funnier than that would he's, imply you he's know what one I mean? of the best performers around right now and, and like, it would have oh, been okay, so easy care, to have just been trapped immediately in like I make these songs that like a hit on YouTube and yeah. did not move away from that, and then you would be trapped. You'd be like, "It's insane." It's on yourself in the yeah. end. Yeah, his I think it was words uh, that special words is one of the most crazy experiences. It's just a, like a bombastic, entertaining movie, and he goes all over the place where it's like the songs are good, the lyrics are good, the jokes in between are good, the bits and the pre the the audio cues that he does, and the, he even does like a thing in between. Just it's a in between throwaway kind of joke result. He's like, you know what I really hate about editors? And then it just cuts immediately to the <laughs> setup of another joke. <laughs> just stuff like that. You're like, wow. it's like, wow, it's really, he pushes a lot in his specials. It's incredible. And that was the weird thing about like that, when we were talking about Eddie Murphy, is like, he never had to push. It was a big thing with the uh, sort of, when alternative comedy came around was, you can't only perform for your friends. (laughs) You know, you have to perform for audiences. I'm trying to whittle it down to just my friends. (laughs) (laughs) You have to perform to audiences that that, uh, you have to prove it. I've never gotten as a stand-up. Tell your long story. (laughs) (laughs) He said, the audience wants to like you, but they want to see first if you like them. Mm. And if they sense that you don't like them, they're not going to like you. That's what happens to me over and over. And and, and then he said, I can see that. The greatest advice ever. And Mm. it's a show. 
That's my dumb people got to laugh philosophy. Right. But it's a show. <laughs> yeah. They drove here. They, a lot of them yeah. hired babysitters. You have a stick that makes your voice loud and you're in a light. And, mm. and, it's, and, and it's like you can make them laugh. It's not that hard. Like, yeah. in a sense, it is hard, but then it's almost like your civic duty. They paid money. Yeah. So it's like, well, that was a, why we, don't they deserve it? When whatever alternative comedy w- was in bloom, somehow it got misconstrued that you weren't supposed to try. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was like, no, yeah. that, no, that's not what this is at yeah. all. You have a notebook on stage because you're supposed to have written it today, not because you're selling out if you memorize your act. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> People draw these lines, and you can draw these lines. You can go like Lenny Bruce begat George Carlin begat Louis C.K., I think is a pretty decent line of lineage. I think Lenny Bruce also begat Richard Pryor. I don't think it didn't go Dick Gregory, Richard Pryor. (laughs) No. All comedians obviously have a handful of influences. When I'm trying to explain to somebody when they say so-and-so is not funny, especially if it's an older comedian, you may not be able to convince somebody that this person is funny, but you could convince them that they influence somebody that they find funny, and then that suddenly makes them important. It's sort of like, I believe it was something said about the Velvet Underground. It's like they never sold out Madison Square Garden, but everybody who went to see them started a band that did. Right. No, <laughs> you know, totally like true. You I mean, the Pixies are the Pixies, but you don't get Nirvana without them. Richard Pryor had three major influences, two that are not surprising. Lenny Bruce and Red, Red Fox. Fox. That's not surprising. The third one is Jerry Lewis. Richard Pryor said that Jerry Lewis was his comedy god. That's what got him into comedy. And when you watch early Pryor, he's so physical. He does all this shtick, all this act out. He's a gawky, awkward, skinny guy. He's doing Jerry Lewis-esque shtick. And when he appeared on the Merv Griffin show with Jerry Lewis in 65, I have this episode. I showed it at my book launch. It's an amazing panel. Everybody's chain smoking. It's black and white. <laughs> Merv Griffin, and the panel is Richard Pryor, Jerry Lewis, and the Everly Brothers together. And it's amazing, but Richard Pryor is in awe. And Merv says, Richie, you're real quiet. It's unusual for you. He goes, I, I, I just, I just, I just, I'm in awe. And Jerry, you're the, you're the, you're the god of comedy. And, and I have to see that. And That's he tells crazy. this story about how when he was a child, he went and saw Sailor Beware in Peoria. And he said, when I left the theater, there were 300 kids in the street going, even, even. But that, that was what inspired Richard Pryor. And you could see it in his work. And he says so much in that episode. But a lot of people. And I'm sure Jerry Lewis was like, oh, I'm nothing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Moreover. <laughs> Think about that. The most people who would consider Richard Pryor the greatest stand-up comedian of all time, I shouldn't say most, but so many, would dismiss Jerry Lewis's shit, but idolize Richard Pryor. So it's interesting to think that one inspired the other. Now yeah. that kind of well, you wouldn't you- think that Carl Perkins inspired the Beatles, but when you hear Carl Perkins, you go, "Oh." People go like Richard Pryor begat Eddie Murphy. Not really. Eddie Murphy as a stand-up didn't really do anything outside of be incredibly successful. But his actual stand-up didn't accomplish much in terms of his place in the pantheon of what stand-up can do. I don't know if I'm disagreeing with your point or not, but I would disagree to the extent that I think Eddie Murphy begat a black comedy boom that came in the early 90s. Absolutely, yeah. So in that regard, I think he was very influential. I don't know that I do too. And I'm talking about his, not him, his act. It's not his fault. He became far too famous 
far too quickly. Right, right. And unlike Elvis Presley, who just sang songs he was handed, Eddie had to write comedy, and right. he was in a completely hermetically sealed bubble right. from the world by the age of 20. Right. And so how can you really go into the human experience? It's true. Richard Pryor and Lenny Bruce and Carlin, in terms of what they did for a living, had to go back and start again. Right. Had to eat a big bowl of shit. Yeah. They ordered it. Yeah. They went into the shit restaurant and ordered it, but they had to go back. They all walked away from big lucrative paychecks and a big lucrative mm-hmm. lifestyle, went back to discover what they did. Freddie Prince, I think, would be another, because when you go back, it's amazing that people still talk about Freddie Prince because he had almost no material. All the material that it's he did. It's not my the, job, man. Yeah. What he did on the one record is the same that's on the Midnight Special. It's the yeah. same that's on Freddie Prince and Friends. It's all the same material and then he was considered this virtuoso and died young i don't even think he had 45 minutes he had like 30 minutes robert klein complains that freddie prince was ripping off lenny bruce and literally doing his material verbatim when he was dating uh kitty bruce baron vaughn was saying that richard Pryor says in the book prior convictions that he was never a fan of eddie murphy's stand-up because he thought it was mean lenny bruce and richard Pryor and carlin in the 70s not carlin in the Mm-hmm. 90s mm-hmm. was incredibly humanist and the anger came from people being treated unfairly i think that that's a little bit disingenuous if richard Pryor said that because there's a famous incident i don't know if you know about this oh the hollywood bowl incident? hollywood bowl. oh no, no no i'm not saying that he practices what he preaches right. it's disingenuous of Pryor to say yeah i think what fueled Pryor's act was anger most of it justified A lot of it, not the Hollywood Bowl incident being incredibly... Let's qualify here. We both consider Richard Pryor a genius and the epitome of stand-up. I agree completely. And I don't think that stand-up Martians come down and go like, all right, what's stand-up comedy? I would show them live in concert, the first Pryor concert film from 79, and go, well, this is as good as it can be. Now, he's a genius, but through today's prism... We all dismiss Bill Cosby as a horrible person, but Richard Pryor was not very good to women in the 70s. He was uh, abusive. No, 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 no. Abusive towards well, women. Until his dying day, yeah. he was not. Yeah, yeah. you have to separate. And this is I, and I the said, Hollywood Bowl incident, for people that are listening, is one of the notorious homophobic screeds at a gay fundraiser. At, where, an, AIDS, at an AIDS rally. Yeah, one yeah. of the first big uh, AIDS rallies. And he, and, sc- he screamed, faggot this, faggot this, yeah. you people this, you. how dare yeah. you, for like yeah. 10, 15 minutes. Where were you faggots when we were burning? Down Watts yeah, is what he says. Yeah. Yeah, and you kiss my rich black ass yeah, is the famous yeah. one. What you don't get at all in Eddie Murphy's stand-up is the humanist sticking up for the little guy that you see in the best of Carlin and right. Pryor. And, right. and in terms of stand-up, when he was at his creative peak, he was where Elvis was when he was making clam bake. He just had no exposure to the world. He was right. so walled off. I, which I guess is why his funniest bits are usually the ones about his childhood, where he did have a... Where he was world. in the world. He was yeah. living in the world. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He actually did one thing that I think influenced stand-up, which was he took basically an impressionist, mm-hmm. but did an act full of impressions, but wasn't labeled as an impressionist. Yeah, it's true. He made being impressions just a part of stand-up. You know who else is an impressionist nobody ever calls an impressionist? Norm MacDonald. Yeah. 
He does brilliant impressions that nobody else does. Bob Euchre, Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. They're all hilarious. Nobody has ever pegged him as an impressionist. Jim Carrey was started off as an impressionist. Yeah. I think he built himself as an impressionist. Yeah, he did. But Eddie Murphy was really the one that was like, no, I'm not an impressionist. I'm a comedian. But yeah. his actors all impressions. Yeah. And Bill Cosby and Woody Allen and, and, and Richard Pryor and... Louis Prima, <laughs> you know, you have to at some point separate the art from the artist or you can't appreciate it. Well, anybody. yeah, of course. You know, you can't delete the albums. You can't, you know, that's It's funny important. though. Some people get a pass and some people don't. So Manson's uh, music was... <laughs> <laughs> well, he did write a song for the Beach Boys, right? Yeah, he wrote a song for the Beach Boys, so come on. <laughs> it's about sun and fun. Hampton, you're Crow. Baron, you're the new Tom Servo. I'm Servo, yeah. You're Jonah Heston. Yeah. Did you audition? Do you have voice? Do you, I mean, what are you doing? Because yeah, Crow sense. and Tom Servo didn't, they weren't that affected. I mean, no, I Crow mean, sounds, it's a, you know, Crow was, sounds like Trace to me. Trace, yeah. it's just, a, it's a, like a higher octane yeah. Trace. It's just uh, a normal one. Which I, I'm, I'm basically yeah. talking a little bit more through my nasal because it's, that's for me, because I've grown up with it so much that it's like when I look at Crow, Crow naturally has a nasally voice. Yeah. Well, he, to, yeah, he's got, he you know looks, what I mean? He's got so much beak. He's got a, he's, he's got like so a high beak. line. He's a high line mitt and a split bowling pin. You know, he looks like Bert, and he's talking through his nose because he's got a long nose. So that that makes perfect. <laughs> yeah, sense. it's just like when you visually see him, you go, "He would sound like that." Yeah, it was basically when Joel asked me after he kind of settled on me as the host. He's like, "Oh, like who do you think could be the new Servo and Crow?" And it was just like a Can't weird decide. thing. I was like, "I don't know if I can have the responsibility yeah. of doing this." And It'd be great if when they brought the X Files back, it was Robert Patrick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Darren McGavin. Yeah. The X Files you know and love. Yeah. And the other chick. When I thought of like who could play Crow, I immediately thought of Hampton. Just because yeah. Hampton has always kind of reminded me of Crow anyway. You just you have a higher register, you you know. But the also I, I, the thing I do think which has been so great about all of it is how it really all makes a lot of sense. And yeah. we've known each other for a while. Yeah, that makes a lot of yeah. sense. <laughs> it's like I'm just slightly annoying and I'm also <laughs> and I'm also a great friend, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I don't on care. So many, on so many levels. Levels you were, you've always been my crow. Totally, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It just makes perfect sense. And then when you said Baron, I was like, "That's yeah. fucking amazing. where I where I <laughs> exist is my uh, sort of sarcastic depressiveness, well, the a, essence of Tom Servo. But well, you're also yeah, not yeah. afraid to be a yeah. showboat, and people naturally love you. Well, yeah, this, <laughs> when Joel and I started talking about the attributes of Servo, Joel just the way he speaks weirdly. It's like he's such like <laughs> when he starts going off about something, it's so odd because it's like yeah, a just lot a lot of bravado. But he's just like it's like you know. To me, well, he's like yeah, people uh, think he's a stoner. He's not, he's but he's not. very introspective. Yeah, but he's just yeah. like he's like you know. I always felt this about Servo, and now like you know, he's a ladies' man. He's an actor. He's you know, he's like he always had a, like a black soul to him, you know. And I was just like, hold on, this is reminding me of my friend. <laughs> your response was so Servo when I said, "Hey guys, good job on that funnier dive video." And your response is, "They cut out my Shakespearean <laughs> monologue." I did. It's true. Yeah. I said the entirety of Richard the Third. And like that's the like, thing. I was like, they cut out my Richard the Third, but it's fine. And I can hear that's like a servo thing. Well, it's like, yeah, but they cut out my. And, and what's very good also that just really does make me super excited is we're pretty good friends. Where are you in production? What's going to happen? Where can people see it? So, yeah. Well, we've raised million dollars and uh, <laughs> add the audio later. Yeah. Yeah. I've raised. Hey! 
It's still still being raised. Yeah, at the time of this recording, we are definitely doing six episodes. Yeah, Zoinkles. It's a definite yeah. six, and right. we really hope we can do 12. Do more. Yeah, uh, I'd love uh, to do seven. Even. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, like seven, I was honestly like, six is great, but man, like seven so is just be. over that half a... It's like a British yeah. television series. Yeah, exactly. You know what it is? Right. Seven is the amount of episodes they did in the seventh season. Yeah, Which is a great too. season. That had Laser Blast. And seven that was, for seven? Oh, Laser Blast. That's probably my favorite episode. So Laser Blast is one of the... Like, Space Beauty's great. Where was great? Back. Zombie Nightmare. <laughs> what about Danger Death Ray? I don't think I've seen that one. That one's pretty good. Well, Mi- is it Mitchell is that Mitchell is what Mitchell, Mitchell's yeah, one Mitchell. of the all-time yeah. best episodes. Was that well, Mitchell's amazing. That was uh, yeah, season seven. Yeah, it was season seven. Yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> so where can people see Mystery Science Theater? As of this point, we don't know. Uh, uh, <laughs> That's half true. Yeah, it's true. For we're making the episodes. We're, we're going to make them. Joel, he wants the show to develop like it did originally at KTMA. He wants right. to uh, have it develop in its own bubble with no outside notes or any kind of producers or suits mm-hmm. coming in and saying what he should do. So we're just going to most likely make this one on our own uh-huh. and see if anyone's interested. They are. There are talks with different places. But sure. It's also great that it just goes directly to like people who want it. Like yeah. there is yeah. actually just the way. For if you're interested in this, you have now paid to help produce this. Yeah, and now yeah. this will go directly to you. Joel correctly assumed that the fans of MST3K are as voracious <laughs> as those of Veronica Mars. Yeah, <laughs> right. And now we're starting some kicks. You yeah. know what I mean? The weirdest part, I think, for all three of us is that we don't get to get into conversations on whether the new crew is going to be any good. Yeah. That's something that I'm kind of missing out on. I was like, I remember when Mike took over. I was like, yeah, who's no, this like- guy? He's going to suck. And now I, that's why I don't fault anybody for. Yeah. No, my knee jerk reaction is like, that's amazing. And why? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's like, especially with Joel, because he's such a visionary and just a very smart guy. And when yeah. he kind of like lays out what he wants to do, you go as a fan, you're like, that's perfect. So. Mm. I'm that much more excited. Yeah, his uh, his stink is all over it still to this day, and it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, can't get a, his stink off. Yeah. When will his musk? It's a musk. It's, it's a, a musk. Uh, when will his, the iron? It's grip a midwestern. Of Joel. It's a it's a it's a Lutheran tinged musk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Have a great Christmas. Thanks. You too, Dana. Hey, man. Not a good holiday. <laughs> Christmas. And if you're Jewish, this year have a Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> When people talk about comedians, it's Phyllis Diller, Lily Tomlin, Joan Rivers. Yeah, they're the only ones that get mentioned, and they're all early 60s. Rusty Warren also. Yeah, Rusty Warren seldom gets mentioned. There was a lot of women doing stand-up early on. A lot of them were not people we would consider great comedians, just competent comedians, but it doesn't matter. If you're a woman doing stand-up before 1970, you're historically significant by virtue of the fact that you're a woman. There is nobody else doing it. So there's a lot of people that don't get any credit that deserve credit. That's true. And it wasn't because they were kept out of comedy. It wasn't an occupation that women went into. It's sort of like doing a history of women Navy SEALs. They're only starting to go into the SEALs. Yeah, well, the same way that there was women entering the non-traditional workplace during World War II, there was a vacuum. Men were overseas, so women were doing what had previously been men's job. Yeah, The same was true in show business. So this woman, Jean Carroll, who I write about in my book, who predated Joan Rivers, predated Lily Tomlin, predated Phyllis Diller, inspired all of them, and they would tell you as much, started getting most of her work because the people like Alan King and Jack Carter were enlisted or overseas. And so- This is in the 40s. In the 40s. During World War II. Yeah, she started in vaudeville as a comrade 
comedy team with this guy, Marty May. Marty May was the star. The billing was Marty May annoyed by Gene Carroll. That was their billing in the late 20s. And they toured uh, uh, presentation houses in the 30s. Then they broke up. Then she got married to this fella. The guy she married who was doing the act with her, he went off to war. So now she kind of rewrote the act as a solo. The same way George Carlin rewrote his act with With Jack Jack Burns. Burns. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So she started doing all these gigs and started playing all these big presentation houses, the Hippodrome in uh, Baltimore, uh, the Paramount in New York, all these major presentation houses that normally a woman wouldn't be allowed to do or a comedian with that little amount of experience wouldn't do. So over the course of the war, three, four years, she got very, very good at playing to these audiences. And she was the first of a new breed, unlike those women who had come before Gracie Allen, Moms Mabley, Jean Carroll didn't do a character. She, she was just Jean Carroll. She didn't wear a funny costume. She didn't wear a frumpy hat. She didn't put on a silly voice. She didn't do song parodies. She didn't do sketches. She did jokes. She was like a Henny Youngman or a Rodney Dangerfield. Joke, 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 right. joke. And she became very, very good. And if people go on YouTube, there's two clips, one of her on Ed Sullivan and one of her on the Frankie Lane show, and they're great. If you um, go and see them, you'll find, I would think, 40 to 50% of the jokes will make you laugh today. Which is big. Yeah, most men from that era would not have the same uh, shooting accuracy today. Yeah. So she was, uh, <laughs> she, was in, she was, she was in grouping. Yeah. So she was incredible and she was an Ed Sullivan regular, but when her husband returned from the war, a couple of years went by and he was named head of GAC, one of the major talent agencies of the day and became the big breadwinner. And because of that, in typical fifties fashion, she retreated, became a housewife and raised their family and kind of left standup. So she became forgotten in her own time. By 1960, she was doing very little standup and she lived just up until a couple of years ago, died at the age of a hundred, God but, bless her. but completely forgotten. But Lily Tomlin yeah. used to see her on Ed Sullivan And Lily Tomlin will tell you this story. She used to put on dresses from her mother's closet and then pretend that she was Jean Carroll. She played Jean Carroll in dress up. So Jean Carroll was very, very influential. One of the first female straight stand-up comedians of her era. There were a handful of others, like I say, Moms Mabley. Minnie Pearl, who we would dismiss as just kind of a hokey act from Hee Haw and the Grand Ole Opry. Really, she was a female stand-up at a time when nobody else was a female stand-up. Yeah. So by that, again, by that very uh, virtue is a politically significant person in the history absolutely, of show business. Yeah, Minnie absolutely. Pearl. And you know, everybody would dismiss Minnie Pearl as nothing, as a, as a jokey, hacky, right. stupid thing. But really an important person in the yeah, 30s and, and 40s, and, touring as a female stand-up. And we have to continue this in another podcast, because we didn't even touch on Jonathan Winters. But when you talk about people like Jean Carroll, Moms Mabley, Minnie Pearl... Not only are they doing an occupation that is, by and large, specifically done by men, right? that's an hour a night. The other 23 hours of the day is also a very rough sure. life. You're traveling, traveling yeah. you're in hotels, you're in strange cities, you're away from your family and your friends and your support group. And now there are tons of amazing female comedians, mm-hmm. I think, more now than ever. More than ever, yeah. More than ever. And their life is still tough. Yeah. Arden Marine tells the story of being in a club. This was maybe four years ago. And then the doorman started to lecture her on how to do stand-up. Right. Because she's a woman. Right. So he'd have to tell her. Yeah, sexism is alive and well. So there's more women than ever doing stand-up, but the sexism has not eroded or changed yeah. hardly at all. And especially... Especially when you go on the road and you get away from Los Angeles or New York, the bullshit yeah. that you have to deal with as a woman in comedy is uh, is endless, yeah. really. Yeah. It is. So uh, any woman who did stand-up in the 30s and 40s and 50s is historically 
important and probably inspired other women we'll never know about. There's all kinds of little obscure female comics from the late 40s that don't get much written about them. People like Betty and Jane Keene, who were a big headlining act for a while. This woman, Connie Sawyer, who's still alive, is the oldest member of SAG. She's 103 years old. Ironically. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But she did stand up in the late 40s with Imogene Coca and Kay Ballard, these other people that we came to know for TV and stuff I always thought it was ironic that the SAG Awards was a room full of people with facelifts. <laughs> There's so much in this book. We can't cover it in one in one interview, but you've promised to come back, which I, I'm very excited about. Yes, when the paperback comes out of yeah. The Comedians, yes. Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy by Cliff Nesteroff, yeah, it's, I will return. It's the holidays. If you are a fan of comedy at all, this book is essential. And, and, and by the way, tons of information, but it's just incredibly entertaining because oh, thank the, you. the fact that the book is, these are all crazy people. Nobody goes into stand-up comedy because they have their shit together. Right. This is just a history of crazy people. And <laughs> it is so entertaining. If there's someone in your life that loves comedy, you have to get them for it, especially if that person is yourself. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. Other podcasts reach for the sky. David Goldbaum. We barely try. The Dana Gould Hour. Listen all the time and give us all your money. That's all we ask. This has been the Dana Gould Hour, brought to you by the Internet. Music by Andy Paley, with Jake Posner behind the board. Produced by Jeff Fox. Graphic design and web production by Spencer Hunt and Segan Friend. Sound editing and post-production by Jalinda Palmer and Joe Napolitano. Hey, if you like the show, why don't you drop us a line at show at danagould.com. Tom Kenny speaking. Just your body's way of saying, look, that's all, folks. Uh